I could not believe what I was seeing. I could have filled the back of his head with 556, which is an absolute joke. Well, it's not an ape, because if the Sasquatch was an ape, we would already have one. What are these elusive hominids that stalk the wilderness? Your host, two-time witness and field researcher for more than 40 years, William Jevning. Welcome to the mystery. Welcome to Creek Devil. I'm speaking with Mark today. Mark, how are you, my friend? Good, Will. Well, I, I guess you've got a little bit to tell us, so let's go ahead and start with the beginning. When did, you know, your encounters with Sasquatches begin? My very first one was while hunting deer uh, here in Utah. I live in Utah now. I'm originally from Virginia, but... Um, my mom wound up settling out here. Her and my dad split up. But um, anyway, my stepdad and his brother and a friend of mine from school here, if you have a note, you can go hunting for during the deer hunting season for a week with your folks. And I was able to take a friend, and we went. And I don't know if you're familiar with the topography of Utah or not, but we've got tons of national parks and forests and uh I think about where I live right here. I live right by Mount Timpanogos, so I'm at about 13,000 feet above sea level, just at my home. So there's plenty of thick. It's like Colorado, just exactly like Colorado, pretty thickly forested with pines and quaking aspens, we call them here anyway, Mm -hmm. or aspens, I guess they're called anywhere else. But we were hunting up a place called Fairview Canyon, and it's in southern Utah, probably about 100 miles from where I live now, one way. And up on the top of, of this, it's up Fairview Canyon. There's, I call them little lakes because they're bigger than ponds, and it's surrounded by pine tree forests, and then the outskirts of that are quaking aspens, and there was a draw going up from one of these lakes. And my stepdad and his brother said to wait about an hour and a half and then wanted me and my friend John to come up the right side making as much noise as we could, chucking some rocks down in the center and just being, you know, being noisy and obnoxious to drive deer towards them who were waiting at the top of the draw, and they weren't going to fire over towards the right at all if there were any deer. That was the plan, and uh, we were in a soft-top Jeep, so it didn't lock or nothing in the doors, so they headed up. I had a twenty-two pistol long rifle on my side and a knife, which I gave my friend because he didn't have anything, and I don't know, just to make him feel better. And we started up talking, and I think I noticed it before John, but I swore I heard something above us. Now it's October's deer hunting season here, and most of the foliages on the ground are dead or dying about that time, even a little bit of snow at that elevation. But it's still really hard to see 10, 15 feet past the trees. They're still so thick. And I, I literally thought it was my dad and my uncle messing with us at first. And I asked my friend John, did you hear that? And he said, hear what? And we just continued on. And I want to guess about maybe we made it halfway up the draw. 
and we both heard it this time, and we stopped. And I said, I know you heard that. And John said, yeah, I heard that. And I said, hey, we know you're up there. I started hollering up there. I literally thought it was them trying to scare us. And nothing was said. But some pine cones started being thrown at us, and even little rocks, smaller rocks. And they got about as, when I noticed them the most, as I'd say maybe baseball size, they were smacking through some limbs. Mm-hmm. And then they bounced down. Nothing came near us or hit us, but stuff was being chucked at us. And I'm still thinking it's them at this point. And I'm like, knock it off. You're not scaring us. It's not funny at all. And we're trying to walk some more, and I can hear this pacing, but the pacing, pacing us is way heavier than than us. I can almost feel it through the ground, a little bit of, uh, I don't know what you want, whomping, whomp sounds. Sure. But I couldn't see anything yet. And um, about that time, I swear it sounded like, almost like helicopter blades. I, I guess it was a waterlogged, broken chunk of a tree, probably about 13 inches around, maybe about four feet long, went flying over our heads, breaking bigger limbs and stuff and crashing down. And uh, John looked at me and he goes, what do you want to do? And I said, let's get the hell out of here. So we ran to the bottom of the draw and then started zigzagging back and forth. There was a little creek running down that, back towards the Jeep. And I could hear something chasing us. And as we're trying to dodge and you're looking between the trees, grabbing them, swimming around them and stuff with your hands, slipping in mud, snow, I saw a shape. And it was huge. I I knew then it wasn't my uncle or Terry. Now, we got up there right as the sun was coming over that side of the mountain, over the east side of the mountain. So it would have been about 7 a.m., I'm guessing. So the sun was against it. So all I could see was a silhouette and a lot of hair. And I thought bear at first. Sure. But even that young, I, I think it was the first year of junior high. I think you're about 11, 12. I was smart enough to know a bear couldn't walk that far that long. And I still didn't even think Bigfoot or anything. That only came later in my life. Um, we run back down to the Jeep. But as we were zigzagging across this creek, coming down the channel, um, I noticed some footprints, and John saw them as well. I was like, you see them footprints? And I thought, why would they take their boots off to scare us? I wasn't wasn't really dawning on me how big they were. And we get back down to the Jeep. It's a soft top, and it doesn't lock. So we hop in it, and I start honking the horn for all I'm worth. Nothing else was thrown, and nothing came at us. Oh, I forgot a part. I did threaten to shoot up the hill at them buy them because they were throwing stuff before that big log came out us. So I forgot that. Um, I did mention that in the other other thing with David. I didn't want that to be inconsistent. I wouldn't have shot, but I thought if they, it was them the whole time and I thought if they were trying to be funny you know, I'd try to put a little fear in them as well. I was trying to be brave, I guess. Sure. But, but we got down there and I started hawking the horn and about an hour and a half later my stepdad and his brother come down, my Uncle Terry, and they're just mad as I'll get out because we never met up with them. And uh, me and John are just dumbfounded. And I'm like, what are you talking about? You chased us out of there. You were throwing things at us. And after a little bit of arguing, I'm getting upset. And we were both just shaking, shaking. I, John might have even wet his pants a little bit, I think. Um, I think he did. 
Um, but so we described what was happening and told them about the footprints, and they laughed at us and said, "You probably saw a bear or a deer or something," because mm-hmm. we do get bear here occasionally, and um, we've seen a million deer. I mean, a, a million deer growing up, eating it my whole life. It wasn't no deer, and it wasn't any bear. The bear here don't get that huge anyway. And uh, so they didn't believe us, and they told us we were crazy. So we kept our mouth shut until the bus ride back to school. We rode the same bus, and we happened to mention it to our science teacher. Well, he got all excited and apparently knew and told us we probably saw a Sasquatch encountered a Sasquatch. I was like, what's a Sasquatch? And he said, Bigfoot. No internet back then. I'm I'm going to be 51 in August, so no such thing as the internet then. You know, the telephone company owned your phone even. Right. And uh, he asked if he could get permission from our parents, if we could go back up there and show them the area. My stepdad wound up going with us. We found two old frozen footprints by the time we got back up there. It would have been a week and a half, about a week and a half later, and he got two casts. And after we got back from all that, he had John and I do a show-and-tell and hold up these footprints. And he had a, one of those cloth tapes that roll up, like right. a seamstress would use. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was like about 17 inches long and about six and a half at the top. And that didn't really mean a whole lot to me. And But he's explaining what happened to us, had us tell our story and pass these plaster casts around. Hindsight, I wish I would have kept one or asked for one. I've looked out plenty now. But um, So anyway, I go on with life, and I wound up seeing an old, old show at a local theater called Sasquatch the Legend, I think it's called. It was almost like a Disney documentary mm-hmm. because I wanted to understand what happened to me. And the only way you found out about movies back then, of course, was the newspaper or maybe TV. You know, so you'd look in the newspaper, and I saw this, and I remembered what he called it, so I went and checked it out. And really, they talked about this uh, Eight Canyon, those miners of Eight Canyon and stuff, right. mm-hmm. you know, where they threw all the rocks on top of the cabin or whatever. But anyway, that's that's as much as I knew about it, and I never even told the wife I was married to for 27 years until 21 years into our marriage only to be heard I was crazy anyway. And then my second encounter happened when I was a young soldier stationed at Fort Sill, Oklahoma. That was pretty much it for the Utah one. What what happened when you were stationed at Fort Sill? Well, I was going through artillery school there, and uh, I had com- once I had completed artillery school, my, I wound up getting stationed there as well. So I was moved my family and my two sons out there at the time. But I was pulling field guard duty as a corporal on a battery section of 105s. They were self-propelled and eight inches, and there was a whole bivouac site set up with fire barrels and everything. And I, I know you're a vet too, so I know you understand what I'm saying. Sure. Yeah, and um, I was pulling it with a PFC, and we had uh, we had to check in with CQ every hour on the hour. He would go to the west, I would go to the east around the guns, because on the weekends especially, um, most of Fort Sill is still owned by the tribes, the local tribes, and they still go, hey, there. It's not unknown for the local cowboys or even the indigenous folks to get drunk and 
wind up in the wrong place, you know, on a firing range or something in their trucks. Right. And, mm-hmm. you know, pretty much to keep people away from that equipment and, and not to get hurt. So the PFC headed to the west. I headed to the east. And about this time, it was pretty close to 2.30, quarter to 3 in the morning. We had to make a 3, 3, 3 a.m. check-in. And uh, I I was about before the last two of the 8-inch howitzers. They were in a, a big U. And the uh, tubes are kept elevated with a canvas bag on the end to keep moisture out of them and stuff till they're ready to fire. And it's about from the ground to the top with the column meter, um, about 10 feet to the bottom of the barrel because they're at about a 45-degree angle with that canvas bag on until you're ready to shoot or punch them out and clean them and stuff. And um, I heard a growl. And I stopped, and the first thing I thought was coyote. And, of course, on an American post, they don't give you anything but blanks. Right. <laughs> so I had my M16 A1 with blanks, and I had some hand grenade simulators. All they do is go bang really loud. Right. And I, yeah, flipped my selector switch to auto, thinking I'll scare it off. So I started edging up along the side of the track, the left side of the howitzer. It was facing north, and I was going up along the left side of it, and I saw this great big shadow standing there. And my eyes are way adjusted because we've been out there since everyone else left anyway. And we never left from the CQ tent to go on patrol until your eyes were adjusted from inside mm-hmm. the tent where light was anyway. Right. It's only kind of common sense. And there's this great big shape with this arm thrown up around the barrel. That wasn't anything like what I saw in Utah wide-wise. But what... The next day, I measured with the column meter, and it was, its head was about two feet shy of the very end of the barrel, and it was facing me, so it was facing approximately south with its right arm hooked up around the barrel, and it growled even deeper, so low, so, how do I put it? It was so low that I felt my chest vibrate, and literally the ejector port on my M16 was vibrating as well. I mean, wow. Yeah, if you will. Now, that freaked me out. That brought, like, a flashback of, of when I was younger. I mm-hmm. could see the hair silhouetted. It was pretty bright. I don't think it was a foam there, but it was pretty bright. Pretty clear sky. No mountains or trees. Oklahoma's pretty flat. At least where I was anyway, scrub oak, stuff like mm-hmm. that. But the firing range is out in front of the guns. is clear for miles. And uh, I started to back up, and everything is going through my head. And I literally started talking to it. I was like, please don't hurt me. I just want to go back to my tent. Please don't hurt me. And I kept backing up and backing up, and I almost thought there was a second one because I backed into something, and I, I thought I was going to die. It, all this is happening in a millisecond, but it seems like forever. And sure. I backed into a fire barrel and heard this bong, but my head's thinking it's one of them. It's going to, I don't know, right. tear me limb from limb. And I'm thinking, do I do I fire off the rounds? You know, what's going on with the other guys? There are only one of them. I, you know, I didn't think they traveled in groups. I wasn't really into checking them out or anything. I thought, well, why is, you know, so much is going through my head? What's it doing here? You know, 
is I, like a lot of other people, thought they were just the Pacific Northwest. Oh, yeah. You know, because I, I never really got into trying to deeply understand what happened to me until after the Fort Sill incident. So mm-hmm. I back into this, and as I instinctively turn around just to look, even though it's a fire barrel once, you know, um, sanity settles in, and I whip my head back around to make sure I'm not being charged or something. There's nothing there. It's gone. My head's, my, my neck is breaking, whipping back and forth so fast. Well, I backed up all the way to the tent, which was probably 150, 200 yards away from this fire barrel I was at. And, I, you know, with my weapon barrel out in front of me, swiveling back and forth, knowing if I pull the trigger, is it going to, you know, make it angry? Is it going to attack me? It's not going to hurt it. Right. It just blanks anyway. So I'm wondering, uh, as closer I get to the tent, I'm starting to think about the PFC, and I'm like, well, I wonder where he is. I flip open the flap, and he's not in there. And I'm thinking, do I go look for him? There's nothing I can do for the guy. Should I call in right now? And it's just about 3 o'clock. And I know if I don't call in, they're going to call us, wondering why we aren't making uh, checking you know, in, checking right. in, making our hourly calls. <clears throat> So as I'm trying to decide what to do, the flap flips open, and there he is. And he and he says, what the hell was that? He heard the growling. And I tried to tell him what it was. And I got called crazy for the second time. And that's when I clammed up about it for years. But, you know, through that first marriage. And uh, But as soon as I got out of the military, I started digging into stuff, especially once computers became more available at home and stuff like that. I wanted to understand what had happened to me. And I've got a couple of areas that I've been researching here in Utah, as a matter of fact, for about over 25 years now. And I've never caught a picture of anything. Um, Mm -hmm. Don't seem to like cameras, but I've left some digital audio recorders. David was going to help me release some of this and help set up a site, because i I got to admit I'm pretty computer illiterate. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I've got what? a lot of photos, too, of footprints and stuff and casts. Oh, wow, great. You'll have to uh, have to show me some of those. It'd be very interesting yeah, to see Yeah, I can actually um, email you some that, that I took just, like, earlier this winter, right behind our uh, motorcycle clubhouse. I'm in a motorcycle club, uh, and we've got this, it's a great big canal, man-made mud and it comes from American Fort Canyon which comes from the front side of Mount Timpanogos which the back side is a glacier so um, it's you know got water coming down it all the time and deer and everything yeah. else and it's whenever they release the, the gate flood gates or whatever as the the winter runoff starts to come down well the beginning of the winter it was at its fullest it's about six seven feet deep but I got some real nice juvenile prints in there um, following some deer prints. Well, tell me, about some of the, some. tell me about some of the finds you've made up there. I'm sorry, say that again? Tell me about some of the finds you've made. Oh, well, it's a pretty hot spot up here. It's called the Alpine Loop. You can uh, drive this... Hey, you can call it a two-lane road if you want to, but it's pretty scary even on a motorcycle. 
Um, it goes all the way across the top of Tim Mount Timpanogos, and it comes down out Provo Canyon, right past Sundance, which is Robert Redford's place, uh, mm-hmm. ski resort there, and where he started the Sundance Film Festival that everybody knows about. Um, but right up top there is nothing but, once you get past all the wealthier folks' homes, it's it's literally sheer, sheer mountainside with, I guess it's probably, it's a pretty steep grade. It's steeper than 45 degrees in some places of nothing but pine trees just all the way up in big rolling valleys in these, in these canyons because it's one canyon from Sundance Canyon over down the top to American Fork Canyon with all kinds of little side canyons off that. Mm-hmm. And people ride horses all up in there and stuff, but it's, and they hunt deer, you know, during deer season, but clear up top there, if you go up there, it's not where a lot of people go. Now, there's this guy named uh, Utah Sasquatch, his name's Rio, he's been all over the internet. He yeah, went up I there. Know. I know him. Yeah, yeah, and did a little bit of stuff, but that was his first time up there, because I guess he's from more up from... Salt Lake or Ogden, and uh, this right. is actually in Utah County. And I found a whole bunch of tree structures up there, which I don't put a lot of stock in, because anybody can make them. Exactly, I but agree there are you. some that you know. Say again. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree. Yeah, yeah. There are there are the odd ones that you know I'll I'll take pictures of with my phone or something because they're just in the oddest places. They're there's no hatchet marks, and they're gigantic. You know, I mean, gigantic. Uh, bigger than two feet around, some of these logs built off of one central pole, the teepee thing I don't put a lot of stock in. The, these are a little bit different. They don't look like they're shelters or anything. To me, they look like a marker or something. I, I'll even email right. those to you. Yeah, I've got a, and, uh, I've got a friend up in Alberta, uh, First Nations uh, member up there. Who sent me pictures of of something very similar? They're not not something that would any you know anyone would consider a, a shelter or anything like that, but uh, but more of a marking. Yeah, it's very well put. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, I don't suppose you're familiar with Colorado area, Colorado Bigfoot. Um, a little bit. That's that's this guy. He gets into the deep, gigantic, huge trees. Mm-hmm. And even in the snow on snowshoes. And I suggest you take a look at that. Well, I'm interested in your take on that because this guy has come across some of the most fantastic markings I've ever seen in my life from mm-hmm. Oklahoma to Utah. With that, There's no way men did it. No way men did it. Yeah. And it's pretty amazing. And, uh, yeah, I, I subscribe to his channel and I watch it. I'm pretty reserved about it. But, uh, Anyway, I've got, there's a, there, I, I totally believe they are a apex ambush predator. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, blinds is what I think they, they almost kind of like would make. Right. You know, I can right. see areas pant down and stuff that where they'll even be, I've got pictures of that as well, where there's little outlines of their feet and stuff mm-hmm. uh, above game trails and stuff. Right, because I mm-hmm. yeah, to me, if they're that big, they're going to expend as little energy as they can for the maximum benefit. 
Exactly. Yeah, that's that's what I figured out a number of years ago here in Northern California too. Yeah, I don't I don't really go for any of that. Uh, what do they call it? Woo. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> yeah, I don't believe they come from spaceships or nothing like that. Now, what growled no. at me was was flesh and blood. Well, very interesting, Mark. Fascinating stuff. But yeah, there's a. I've got there's a lot of trackways up there. There's actually two main family family groups that that I've been watching for a while. One is in Sanpete County, up by where we were hunting, where my first encounter was. Uh-huh. And I'm I'm trying to find out. I, I have no way of knowing if if I don't know how long they live. Do you? Nobody knows for sure. Um, if I were to guess, I'd say probably, you know, in the range of anywhere between 50 and, and 70 years. They're not really any different than us then. Probably not a huge amount. I mean, it really depends on a lot of factors, but, uh, you know, gorillas are like that too, chimps. They'll live, they'll live a long time if they, you know, have what they need and, and don't lead too uh, bad a life. Yeah, like that one in Oklahoma. It was it was a whole lot leaner. Didn't seem to be as fat, beefed up, as muscular. It was definitely muscular, but more like a sure. basketball player versus bulked up. And I kind of think that's a little bit akin to like a goldfish in a small bowl, or you put them in a tank and it gets bigger. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. if you got better food, you know what I mean. Better food, more more protein around you and stuff. I think you kind of grow to your environment. Sure. Because I kind of figured out, I, to me, it was kind of common sense, and I think it's a little shameful how how the Bigfoot community has so much infighting, well, you know, all true. over the place. This you is know, true. it's the Yeti, the Garand, Omnesty. It's it's all over the world, pretty much. It's very much, very it's much. It's a so. different thing. All right, my but friend. Yeah, I'd like to. I understand you. You got your fifth book done, or almost done? Oh, actually, uh, let me think. I actually have, if you count the uh, the Bigfoot Fieldwork 101 series, um, that's 12, and I'm I'm about ready to put out. Uh, let's see, I did I redoing in search of the unknown, and I just got back the the edited file on that. It's it's expanded. And I'm putting a bunch of pictures in it, and I've got a new one that I'm I'm kind of excited about. It's it's called. Uh, a case for the existence of, of the Sasquatch, and I have a uh, uh, a retired 40-year veteran trial attorney who's helping me with uh, what I wanted to do is sort of present it, uh, you know, like you would if you went to trial, and sure. just talking about what is evidence, what isn't, what types of evidence, things like that, how how a case would be put before. A jury, and then the base the book the book goes through and, and presents all the different types of evidence, photographs, and uh, and I've even got a picture of a Sasquatch. It's not a facial picture. It's it's walking away from, it's actually running away from the photographer, um, but it's not one of these fuzzy, blurry pictures. It's it's crystal clear. So, yeah, not a blob squatch. <laughs> not a blob squatch. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, um, isn't that funny how your your testimony in court can cost somebody their life, but when it comes to this subject, it holds no ground more. at all. 
if if you I we watch the show Dateline quite often and it always amazes me how little evidence or mm-hmm. kinds of evidence are actually you know enough to convict people and where they you know their whole lives are gone and yeah. I'm thinking we've got so much material on this subject and that's what made me think of doing the book this way so it, it, it's it'll be a fun project and it should be interesting once it's finished yeah that's that's really clever actually I like that idea I'll uh, I'll definitely send you a copy when when I get them completed awesome yeah I actually have the one-on-one in fact, if if you've got any pictures you'd be willing to, you know, lend to the project, I, I would certainly appreciate that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'll shoot you up about it tomorrow. I'll email and of course, too. And, of course, you, you'll be totally credited with all that, so. No, I don't care about any of that. That's nice, but you know what? I, I, I'm, a, I'm at the age where, well, I just don't care who believes me or not. Oh, unseen, I'm the same it way. can't be unseen. Exactly. And I think all of us that have had an encounter with these things, it's exactly the same. You know, you don't really give a damn what anybody else thinks because if it's either you've either seen one or you haven't. And, That's right. And it's two totally different mindsets in my view. And to me, there's no evidence than a personal experience, you know? Exactly. I mean, it just isn't. Exactly. I, I, I've been... In Bigfoot history, Paul Kane in his journal, Wanderings of an Artist, has the following entry for March 26, 1847. When we arrived at the mouth of the Catapula River, 26 miles from Fort Vancouver, I stopped to make a sketch of the volcano, Mount St. Helens, distant. I suppose about 30 or 40 miles. This mountain has never been visited by either whites or Indians. The latter assert that it is inhabited by a race of beings of a different species who are cannibals and whom they hold in great dread. These superstitions are taken from a statement of a man who, they say, went to the mountain with another and escaped the fate of his companion who was eaten by the skookums, or evil genie. I offered a considerable bribe to any Indian who would accompany me in its exploration, but could not find one hardy enough to venture. Hi folks, before we jump into the next segment here, I wanted to mention that in the past we talked about adding different segments to the show, where typically we have a witness, we do a Q&A, then we have the stories. I wanted to kind of change things up periodically and provide some information. Um, and there's some things that, you know, when you listen to this, you may say, well, what's this got to do with Bigfoot? It doesn't really have anything to do with Bigfoot, but if you're in the outdoors, there's things you should be aware of. And, and I want to help you know, raise people's awareness so they don't get into any problems in the outdoors. So that's what we're doing. We're adding this segment. It'll be on periodically. Uh, we'll be adding other types of segments too that are sort of attendant kinds of things that we need to be aware of with the subject. So Tom, do you want to uh, talk about our guest before we uh, jump into this segment? Yeah, thank you. This is David Pearson. David has a channel that he's had active for at least 11 years. The YouTube channel is called Really Big Monkey, followed by the number one. And David focuses on um, 
a lot of just a lot of general uh, not just survival skills but just wilderness safety and one of the one of his episodes that really caught my attention was using a compass to get unlost so this is David Pearson with really big monkey one and we still have the Q&A in this show uh, periodically down the road like I said we'll be adding um, different segments to this uh, second part of the show uh, we'll just sort of change it up periodically we've got a number of ideas but this one we're going to start with and I think you'll find it really interesting we do have a Q&A in the third segment so stand by folks hello everyone welcome to another edition of Creek Devil Tom I'm going to have you introduce our guest and kick this off yeah thanks thank you very much hey David welcome aboard and this is David Pearson David's got a a really good YouTube channel called Really Big Monkey. David, is it Really Big Monkey or Really Big Monkey followed by the number one? Followed by the number one. That was a YouTube typo error. <laughs> okay. But nonetheless, it's, it's a fantastic channel. And I ran into one of your videos about three years ago on why every hiker should have a compass. And, and I just want to tell everybody this is about this is more about getting being safe in the woods and this is a really easy way and david i'm going to hand it to you here in just a second it's a real easy way to get unlost if you get lost because even the best will get lost from time to time so david i'm going to hand you the mic tell us a little bit about that technique because i just think it's fantastic well, to begin to begin with, uh, people have to realize no matter how experienced you are, anyone and everyone has the ability to get lost. And there's a lot of people that are under the false assumption that if they're hiking a trail, they will never get lost. Well, sometimes trails get covered in leaves, they get covered in debris, uh, markings get lost. Uh, people leave leave trails to go and relieve themselves. And that's when you get into trouble and you can, you can get turned around and there's an exercise that you can do at home to prove to yourself you can get lost. And I can cover that too if we have time, but basically you should always carry a compass and your average hiker, backpacker, camper is going to be on trails. And I would assume that the average Bigfoot researcher is going to be going off trail a whole lot more. So the technique is a lot more applicable. But when you leave a trail, uh, you can always leave markers. That's one of the most real important things that you can do. And But the thing is, is once you realize you're lost, stop, don't panic, keep your cool, and don't move any further. When you've accepted it and you've said, yes, I'm lost, Okay, that's when you're going to establish some sort of base camp of some kind. And what you're going to do is you're going to, where you're standing, you were on a trail at one time, and so you have gotten lost. So you're going to establish a home base. And what that's going to be is if you, if you have an orange vest, you can hang it over a tree. Or if you have toilet paper, you could tie toilet paper all around the tree, uh, preferably something orange, something yellow, something bright. Uh, uh, red, orange, and yellow can naturally occur, occur during the fall, but the color blue never occurs 
in the forest in nature. So blue is a real standout color. So probably wouldn't hurt to carry a piece of blue fabric too. So you could have like a flag. But anyway, you have a base base point, okay? And you say, I am lost now. So what you do then is you take your compass and you head north 100, 100 paces, all right? Maybe 200, okay? P- pick an amount, preferably 100. If you haven't been lost long, 100. You go 100. If you don't find the trail, you turn around and you head back to the tree. Then you follow south 100 paces. And then if you haven't found the trail, you come on back and see <clears throat> you haven't gotten yourself lost further and you're not walking around in circles. So then you go east and then you go west. Okay. So once you've done this 100 paces, if you found the trail, that's great. Okay. You're there. If not, then you want to branch out to 200, maybe 300 paces. And a lot, like I say, this is all based upon how long you've been away from the trail, how long you've been lost. And so once, once you've gone in all four directions, it isn't like you got to branch off into a southwest, northwest, uh, I'm at southeast. You know, you don't have to branch off into these 45-degree coordinates. As long as you're going 90 degrees in the four common directions, you're bound to pick up a trail. And uh, that's why if you if you want to, at your base, where your starting point is, if you'll t- wrap a bunch of toilet paper around it, then once you become unlost, you don't have to go back and get it. But that's basically if you have a compass. And for David, I'm going to interrupt for just a second. For people that maybe aren't familiar or uh, there's a lot of people nowadays that use electronic compasses. I'm not a fan, but, you know, they Mm -hmm. they're better than nothing. But you described in your video and we're going to put a link in in the description Mm -hmm. so people can go back and watch it, because I really think it's it's very worthwhile. But you have a direction, excuse me, a direction to travel on your compass and you, you let's say you choose to go north. So you go north. Now what do you do? You've gone 100 paces. You change your direction to travel. Go into that for just a little bit. Okay. <clears throat> for those that aren't familiar with a compass, there's a, a, a compass is always face north, always. And keep them away from metal. Keep them away from your guns, your knives, your, your, your belt buckles, whatever, anything metal. Keep it away from it. Compasses point north. All right. So there's a dial that, turns around and there's a red arrow and the easiest way to remember is that old saying put the red in the shed and what that means is you're going to put the red arrow in your direction of travel so if you're you're going to point your red arrow to the north and then you're going to align your compass and you're with north and then you're going to walk north so the way you want to go back, your compass, your arrow, the black arrow is always going to point north. So to go back, what you're going to do, you're going to compass 360 degrees. Well, if you're turning around and going back, that's 180 degrees. So you just spin the dial back around to where it's aiming south. You put your red arrow south. And then when you turn, the black arrow will still be facing north. And then you're going to travel back to your initial spot. Is that, does that kind of explain it? Yeah, it does. Yeah, that's uh, that was just one of the things. And I'm telling you, it's it's even for people that are really comfortable and familiar with 
with the compass, it's you can you have to make sure that your direction of travel is is correct. You know, you can you can be 180 degrees off and not be aware of it. So that's all. I just wanted to kind of cover that. Yeah. And uh, another thing, too, about the electronics, always it's good to have a GPS and it's good to understand a GPS. But always tell yourself that a GPS is simply a fancy plastic case to protect your dead batteries. <laughs> That's exactly right. And and also another thing is the GPS, it's it's great. However, they're simply doing a computation of where you're at. And so it really depends. You could be in an area where you don't have good satellite coverage. And I've had GPSs that'll just be off a little bit. So anyway, that's I'm a big fan of the old-fashioned compass. Oh, absolutely. And like you say, a GPS is for location. It's when it comes to direction. There's a difference in location and direction. And the compass will work anywhere in the world. And if you have a compass that has what a a lot of people don't understand this, but there's certain compasses that are sold above the hemisphere and below the the the, uh, the, uh, the southern hemisphere and the northern hemisphere. And there's a type of compass called a that has a global needle, and it will work anywhere in the world, whether you're in the southern hemisphere or the northern hemisphere. And so those are good; they work anywhere. Uh, get one, learn how to use it. You don't have to worry about the batteries dying, and there's another technique too for if you're going to carry a compass and you're not going you you're not going to get lost, but you're not using a map. Okay, so what you want to do is like say for example, I want to research this area. Okay, so what you do is you set your direction of travel for where you want to go, and you don't walk through the woods staring at your compass. There's a thing called dead reckoning, and what that is is that's where you take your compass. And it's got a little round window in it that you look through and you'll aim it at an object off in the distance. And this is really important for if there's lots of trees and things in a way and you don't have long distances. Because, you know, like if you were out somewhere on the flats or a flat land or a meadow, you could see the other end and pick another object out. But when you're in the thick woods, which where most researchers will be, you aim it at an object. And then you put the compass away and you walk towards that object. And then you stand in front of that object, like a tree or whatever, especially if it's a a distinctive tree, like if there's a bunch of pine trees and all of a sudden there's a a hardwood there, aim it at that. And then once you stood in front of that, you'll look at your red arrow, your direction of travel, and pick out another object. Now, the way to double check yourself is once you've walked to that other object, turn around and aim your, your compass at that first object that you left and make sure it lines up with it 180 degrees off. That way you'll know you're in a straight line. And then at the end of the day, it starts getting dark. You're ready to return. No, no trail. You're out in the middle of nowhere. You just come back 180 degrees and it'll take you back to your vehicle. David, what do you think about Okay, so so you're out and and you got your compass and you know you're you're doing your your uh, land navigation, basically simple land na- navigation. You had mentioned um, that there's a way to get unlost, even if you don't have a compass. And I don't know what that is, but I'm curious to hear what what's that tactic. Well, 
here's the thing is it's so simple. People don't even talk about it. And it's like, you'll see those shows on TV where you'll have all these uh, survival experts and they're like taking a needle and rubbing it on their pants and setting it on a leaf so they can try to figure out what direction is what. And they're stabbing a stick in the ground and doing the shadow method. Well, simply, simple thing is, is the sun rises in the east and sets in the west, correct? Well, early in the morning, when it rises in the east, it's throwing shadows to the west. So you're standing in a forest full of trees. So early in the morning when the sun is first rising, you can be guaranteed that all the trees are throwing shadows to the west. And then later in the evening, sets in the west, it's going to be throwing all the shadows to the east. Now, it's in the middle of the day when this method doesn't necessarily work because depending on time of year, the shadows are going to be going north to south in the middle of the day. It's, it's only dependable early and late. So all you got to do is surely if you're in the woods, if you're wandering around in the woods, surely you have some sort of inclination of where you walked in. So all you got to do is either travel east or travel west. And the way you're going to travel in a straight line is by following the shadows of the trees. No compass whatsoever. And and do this within like a, a two-hour period because they're going to start changing in the mid-afternoon. Does that make sense? Yeah, it, it really does make sense. And actually, it just brought up another, another topic or, or another tactic, rather, and you're probably familiar with it, but you and I haven't talked about it specifically. That is using a an analog watch and using mm-hmm. that to find south. So I think it's not find south, I think it's find north. Are you I'm sure, have you are you familiar with that tactic? Yeah, I'm familiar with that, but the problem with that is is and the reason why I never recommend that to anyone is because there's certain things you have to remember about the where the arms are and halfway between this and all that and it'll point in a certain direction. The thing is is when you're lost, you're panicking, you're scared and you can't think straight. And that's also why I don't recommend the three stick shadow method, because there's things you have to remember. You have to remember which stick is goes where and which direction the shadow is that to me for the lost person. This panicking and not thinking straight. All you got to remember is the sun rises in the east and sets in the west. And so the shadows are going to be throwing towards the, the aiming to the west in the morning and aiming towards the east in the evening. But that other method, yeah, that other method does work. But like I say, when you're when you're freaking out and panicking, you need to minimize the thought process. You need to keep it as simple as you can because there's a lot of times that whenever people do a lot of these survival methods, they don't remember every little detail, so they pull out their cell phone and look look at it. Well, what if your cell phone's dead or what if you don't have a signal? You need to use what's in your brain that you have the ability to remember in a dire situation and being lost is a horrible situation. You know, you're absolutely right. The emotions, even for anybody, you know, you're, you're suddenly disoriented and you're in the woods and you know, you're, you're okay. I got to get back home. I got to get back to my car. How am I going to do that? Um, You had a story and if you got a moment, maybe you could relay it about that lady that got lost and it was unnecessary but she'd gone off the trail and she perished 
Yeah, for for those of you that might want to look it up, her name was Geraldine Largay. And she was hiking the, uh, if I remember right, I think it was the Appalachian Trail. And she was, she was hiking, and uh, her husband was sending supplies to the different drop points. And she had left the trail for some reason and got turned around. And uh, they searched for her and searched for her and searched for her. And uh, they found her about 300 yards off the trail in her tent, starved to death and dehydrated, dead. And they said that she had a GPS with her and a cell phone. But uh, she had them. Did she have the ability to use them? I don't know. And see, that's the thing about a lot of, and she was a very experienced backpacker. But the thing is, is backpackers follow trials they don't often go off a trail and maybe if you're an experienced backpacker like she was, maybe you have been off the trail so many times to whatever, relieve yourself or take a picture of a flower or chase down a deer and take photographs of it. Uh, anything could get you distracted. And next thing you know, you're turned around. And one thing, one thing that I definitely want everybody to pay attention to is the people out there that say, oh, I have perfect direction. I can't get lost. Well, there's an exercise. Anytime I meet people like that, there's an exercise that I tell them to do. Now, go to the woods and you think to yourself, okay, I am a master of direction. I can walk straight into the woods on a straight path. Well, do this sometime. Go into the woods and take your compass out and just hold it out and aim it. Okay, choose whatever, west, east, whatever. Okay, take your compass, hold it out, look straight, close your compass, put it in your pocket, walk 500 yards, 600, 700, whatever, without the compass and just walk and see if you can do that by your own intuition. You know, since you you can't get lost, you know, you're a master of navigation. <laughs> you have an internal body clock. Uh so once you walk your predetermined amount of yards, stand there, pull your compass out, and aim it straight in front of you, and you will be shocked at how far off you are. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, if even, you know, like uh, pilots and, and uh, boaters and sailors and whatnot, um, you know, we were taught that if, if you could keep a course within five degrees – two to five degrees you're doing really really well and in the woods you're stepping over rocks you're stepping over trees you know there's there's a deviation everywhere you go i can imagine at a hundred yards you're going to be off 500 yards a thousand yards you're going to be way off that's a, that's an excellent point oh yeah and see you'll be teaching yourself because like i said use your own intuition and try to walk straight like you think you can do Walk that amount, then pull your compass out and check to see what your deviation was. And you're going to be horrified. And see, the thing is, is everybody on Earth has a dominant leg. And that's because that, that dominant leg is tied to that side of the brain. And it's also tied to the to eyesight. And if you were in the desert and you tried to walk in a straight line, you you can walk a straight line because you, you're, you're looking off into the distance. But when you're in the wilderness, when you're in the woods and there's trees and there's objects to go around, as you're walking, you're not 
focusing on a faraway bearing. So you're automatically, whatever your dominant leg is going to take over, and you're going to walk in a curve because you'll walk a little bit longer and a little bit stronger with that leg, and that's what puts you in the curve. Now, if you can figure out what your dominant leg is, there's a little trick to overcoming that. If you can't use your dead reckoning or if you don't have the shadows and you want to walk in a straight line, pick a direction. And say, for example, if your dominant leg is your right leg, when you're walking through the woods, uh, that dominant leg is also tied to your brain that every time you encounter an object like a tree, you're going to wind up walking to the right of it, not even realize it every time, and that's going to throw you off course. So what you're going to do is you have to trick your brain that if you're walking through the woods and you know you, your leg is a is is your right leg is your dominant leg, every time you encounter an object like a tree or a rock, go to the left. Make yourself go to the left of it, and believe it or not, you'll stay a lot straighter doing that. David, that's a good tip. I hadn't thought about that, but that really makes sense. I'm sure my right leg is dominant. I'm right-handed, you know, and, and so that would just, you know, stand to reason. Um, let me ask you this. What Are there some compass, compasses that you do like, and are there any compasses that you're not really uh, particularly fond of? And, and what's the reason? Well, the bubble compasses are absolute garbage. And you got all these YouTubers that have these little survival kits, these little Altoid kits, and they have these little button compasses with a bubble in them. And those things are horrendous. You, know, you can go to the dollar store and pick up a handful of them and lay them on the table, and they're all aiming in all different directions. So don't buy a cheap compass. And preferably... You'll want a good compass. Preferably, you want a either a Sunto or a Silva or a Brunton. And those are the three brand names that I would say pretty much any model is going to be fantastic. And uh, I, I, I personally don't like the map compasses because for me, I don't use maps very often. They, they're great for maps. But if you're going to be navigating out into the wilderness, and or if you're going to be off trail and you see something or whatever, you're just going to need a good sighting compass with a mirror. And I like those. And not only that, if you get lost, you have a automatically have a signal mirror. Or if you get something in your eye, you've got a mirror there that you could look at. And the map compasses don't have that. And with a mirror, you open it up and you hold it up and you can sight through the little opening. And as you're sighting through the opening, the mirror is allowing you to see your compass while you're holding it up to eye level. Because when it's at eye level, <clears throat> you can't see the uh, direction of travel arrow. And so that, that's what you need to see. So and, but my number one pick is the Sunto MC2 Global. Global needle. It works anywhere in the world. And when it's got a global needle, another thing about a global needle is you don't have to necessarily hold it perfectly level because some compasses that don't have a global needle, if you don't hold them perfectly level, the needle doesn't balance outright. But yeah, with a global great. Yeah, with a global needle, it'll it'll balance out. Um, and one other compass that is a is a it's really a sighting compass is 
kind of my favorite and have the liquid in it. It's the military uh, Kaminga style. Um, and I'm sure you're familiar with it. Do you have a th- any thoughts on that particular compass? Uh, no, nah, not much. I mean, that's a very, very heavy duty compass. That's also called lensatic, ain't it? Yeah, yeah it is. Yeah, exactly. we, yeah, we use yeah. those extensively. In fact, I try to keep one handy because I'm used to using those. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> they're pretty good. Uh, I've only got one, but I've always wound up using the lightweight plastic ones. And uh, I, the one I've got, made, it's, it's got a brass housing. But those are very good, especially if you're prior military. Uh, use what you feel comfortable with. But I've been through so many comps, compasses that it just seems like the, the Sunto MC2 has been my go-to, and I trust it. And there's another thing, too. A lot of people will carry a compass. And they're just, it overrides their brain that they're reading their compass and they're like, that can't be right. And so they don't trust their compass. And so, so that's a good reason for carrying two compasses. And that is one, if you break one of them, you've got a backup. And then the other one is, is have a compass in your pocket and pull one compass out. And then you're following it. And then you're looking up at the mountains and you're looking at the sky and you're looking at the sunset and you're like, that can't be right. This can't be the right way. Well, pull the other compass out and hold it about two feet away from the other one and look at it. And if it says the same thing, then, yep, it's the right way. But don't get the two. Don't get them close together. They'll interfere with each other. (laughs) Well, that's true. And that's actually a good point. And I'll I'll say this is that when I buy a compass, I've, I've actually got a handful of them just because. I'm kind of a gadget guy, but when I go to the store and buy a compass, by the way, the Sunto that you have, the uh, uh, the MC2, the same one I've got, I've got a Kamenga, and I've got, and I do have one of the map compasses. I will, when I'm in the store do, making my purchase, I'll take two or three of them, you know, off the shelf and hold them away from each other, but test each one of them and see if they all point the same direction. You know, as much as you can do that within the store to make sure. Because every once in a while, the cheapies, the real cheap ones, I've had those point in significantly different directions. They may be off by three, four, five degrees, which is, uh, you know, that'll get you lost. Oh, yeah. that, And if they ever develop a bubble, and uh, a lot of times when they develop a bubble, they can throw you off a few degrees because that bubble may land in just the wrong place. And some people throw them away when they get that, but a lot of times what you can do is during the summer, you can take that compass and put it in the dash of your truck or your car, and the sunlight will come down and hit it and pressurize the bezel to a point where it literally pushes the bubble out. Yes, I've done as soon that. As the bubble, yeah, as soon as the bubble's gone, then take it out of the window and allow it to, to reseal itself. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, David, I've watched a lot of your videos and you, you seem to go out in the woods quite a bit. Do you go deep into the woods where you have the potential that, Hey, you you could be lost, but you got your compass. How, talk a little bit about some of your experiences, uh, in your video making and just how far off trail you get. Well, in my older age, I don't go as far off. I only go about two or three miles out now for the videos. And simply because 
video making is completely different from camping and, and hiking and backpacking because there's so much other stuff that you have to carry with you to make a good video. But if I'm not, if I, I'm not dragging a camera along, yeah, I've, I've gone, I've gone 10 miles out and, but I mean, that's kind of my limit because I just, I just don't like hiking. It, I'll say this, if you're hiking an established trail, going more than 10 miles is absolutely no big deal. But when you're going to where there is no trail and you have to pay attention to where you're going and you're having to cross creeks and go up mountains and you run into cliffs and you have to go around them, uh, when you're bushwhacking like that, you got to kind of pay attention to so many things that it takes so much time to get out there. Yeah, and, it really uh, does. And, and you can get into trouble. Yeah getting off trail like that. I've, I've had that happen to myself a couple of times and not, not really a situation of panic, but um, it definitely caught my attention. Oh yeah. Well, that a doubt. But now I've gotten to where I've gotten more into kayaking and a lot of times uh, with the, uh, the, uh, have you ever heard of the GIS maps? Of course. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Gra- graphical something. Geographical, geographical yeah, geographical information system. And what it is is it's a tax map for each area. And I have discovered that if you look at that thing, it'll show you where all of the waterways are. And a lot of the waterways, no, if nobody's paying taxes on it, then it's in a floodplain. And it could be owned by, like around here, it could be owned by Alabama Power or Georgia Power. You know, it's it's a flood zone and nobody owns it. And so I have learned that you can get in a kayak and you can go off into those places and not get shot or arrested. <laughs> well, that's a so, benefit. <laughs> oh, yeah, without a doubt. And so you can just go out there, you can hop in your kayak and you can go out there and just take your machete and chop up whatever's, you know, <laughs> still standing. Uh, but uh, I, I follow those a lot of night times now. I follow the waterways. But sometimes once I get up into these creeks, into these wetlands, uh, I'll park my boat somewhere, and I always, always, always run up a bright orange flag. I'll take a sapling, and I'll put a bright orange flag overhead. That way I'll know that's my established starting point where my kayak is and then i'll take the compass and then i'll go off through the wetlands and doing whatever and there's even been times before when uh i've went and left my kayak behind and spent the night a quarter mile away from my kayak and uh another thing too is that whenever you're establishing your shelter like that uh always have a lantern or or a blinking red light that way, if you get up at night and or if you, you're traveling off from camp for some reason, put that blinking light on top of your shelter or your tent or whatever. That way you can find your way back. I'm a big fan of any kind of blink beacons, uh, uh, visual flags and, and blinking lights and things like that. Those, those are very valuable. And a lot of people don't think about that much. Well, I got to tell you, I think that's an excellent idea. And. I have not thought of that, you know, when you when you leave your tent, uh, walk away a little bit. Mm-hmm. Having that blinking light's a, a really good idea to, you know, there, there's, yeah. there's home. Well, I, years ago, I got real cocky, and 
I was in a canoe and I canoed up this creek and it branched off into another creek. And uh, I wound up spending the night right there by the by the canoe. And then I wound up thinking that day, I thought, well, I know I'm, I, I haven't been to this area, but I know it used to be a timber grower land. So I'm going to go and collect fatwood. So I left camp and I was pretty cocky about it. And I thought, you know, I'm going to leave. I'm going to go. And so I went and I was collecting fatwood. And then just as it started getting dark, uh, I tried to come back to camp. And the next thing I know, I was lost and it was dark. And so I was like, I'm not going to step in a hole and I'm not going to poke anything in my eye. So I just had to curl up by a tree. And it was probably one of the worst nights I ever spent in the woods, totally lost. So the next day I, I wound up and we got daylight. I wound up walking in circles until I finally heard a road. And I wound up hiking to the road and I knew where the road was. And so I wound up hitching a ride home. And then I wound up having to get a friend of mine to get his big boat. And we put back in the river and had to go back up the creek to fetch my canoe. I was so lost that I never found my camp again. And that's when I realized you have to have a beacon or a marker for your base camp. That is a must. Anybody can get lost. And, and people that camp generally will wander off and explore during the day away from their campsite, especially if you're going to stay somewhere, you know, two or three or four days. And that's also, that's also very inclusive of a researcher. You know, you look on GPS and you're like, or the, the GIS map, and you're like, you know, okay, I want to go research this area, see if Bigfoot's here. Well, you may stay there three or four days. Well, just the natural occurrence of being there is leaving camp and exploring. So always have a, a, a location marker. Well, that's a real good point. And, you know, I, I, you're just talking about uh, having to spend the night with your uh, canoe or kayak there. And I've been in situations where I knew where I was and I knew where I needed to go. And I th here's the thing. I wasn't really lost, but I, mis I misinterpreted the distance. I thought it was a lot shorter. And then you find that you're going a lot longer. And that's almost the same as being lost. You're like, well, hey, wait a second. It should be right there. And mm -hmm. maybe it's double the distance. So just another thing to think about. Yeah, that, yeah, definitely. And that's <clears throat> another thing, too, is people, people need to figure out what their pace is. They talk about using pace beads. Uh, you need to figure out how, how, what the distance is. How many, in other words, how many paces per 100 meters? Yes. That's, that's important, too, because everybody's different. And you need to know your distance traveled by your number of paces. Well, and, and, and it's a good point. Yeah, and, and write it down somewhere. Too. Write it down on your compass or something where you can't lose it. Yes, and they vary too. With flat land, you need to establish how many paces per hundred meters in flat land, and then you also need to for hilly terrain, you need to see how many paces because that, that does vary, especially if you're going to be using pace beads. So some of this may seem like antiquated inf information, but it'll never lead you wrong. Like I said, a, a GPS is a fancy container to protect your dead batteries. <laughs> well, and I can tell you, you know, when Tom and I were in Oregon, what was it, about two months ago, Tom, 
uh, not just the areas we were up in in the forest, but the roads where the and where the the camps were the um, oh you know the hotels we were staying at. There was no cell service anywhere up there. So say that's 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 bad. <laughs> yeah. So you you can't rely. I tell people don't rely on those electronics. Yeah, absolutely. I'm just not a. Uh, they're, I get you know they got their place, no doubt about it. But everybody should have the basic knowledge of how to use a compass. And Will, we we had an interesting situation up there <laughs> at two in the morning, right? Yes, we did. <laughs> we we had company, and they ran us out of there in a hurry. Yeah, in a big hurry. <laughs> <laughs> What kind of company would that be? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, um, five big big. hairy bastards. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Well, see, the the only, the the big hairy ones I've encountered around here have been black bears. And luckily in Georgia, we have no brown bears, no grizzly bears. And black bears are the, the most docile of them all. But, Still, in in with black bears around here, if you're in bear territory, uh, usually I, I carry a whistle, and as I'm walking along the trail, I whistle and make noise to let them know I'm coming because you don't want to walk up on something, nothing like that. Now, I know that wouldn't be applicable, applicable for the Bigfoot researcher because you want to be quiet and stealthy, but that's a double-edged sword there because you're being quiet and stealthy, and you could sneak up on all kinds of wildlife that you don't want to sneak up on. Well, good. Correct. And, yeah. and typically with the black bears, uh, Will, you know this is true. 99.99% of the time when you see the black bear, you see its hind end as it's zipping off into the brush. <laughs> yeah, there's a place yeah, I usually. go. There's a place I go yeah. up in Northern California here where you see them all the time. Every time I go up there, you see black bear. And they're really spooky. They see a person and they're gone. Oh, yeah. Same thing with, uh, we don't have mountain lions like y'all do, and I know those are some really bad animals. All we have down here, basically, are bobcats, and bobcats are almost never seen by people because they are so skittish and scared of people. They know a person's coming, and they get out of there. You know, it's funny. I've seen bobcats twice in the wild i have seen countless uh mountain lion tracks but never once and i watched this guy i said will i sent you that video <laughs> a, a biologist down in texas a mountain lion biologist and he said they're kind of like the yetis of the cat world <laughs> well, you see the footprints <laughs> you know it's interesting tom I, you know i told you I, I did some experimenting years ago and, and i kind of figured out what they're doing at least up in this part of the country um, I had this old Chevy Blazer. The top came off, you know, and and I and I doctored the the wiring on it to where I had everything on toggle switches, so I could turn on and off lights on the vehicle whenever I wanted to, right? So I had this area where I, I had had my second sighting, and so I was up there, and I, and I kept thinking, well, geez, how come there's a lot of animals up here? How come I'm not ever seeing anything? So I would I would drive really slow at night, and I'd go up there when it was real bright moonlight, so you could see pretty well uh, in the dark. And um, I would I would turn all the lights off and just creep along the road, 
and then do that for maybe, you know, a couple hundred feet. Then I turn the lights on. There'd be all kinds of animals on the road. And the same thing with spotlighting. I told some buddies of mine, we wrote camping up in the Olympic National Park. And, uh, and I said, hey, you guys want to see some, see some animals? Oh yeah, yeah. Let's go see something. So off we go and, and we're kind of cruising along. And I told my buddy, Jack, I said, turn your headlights off. Just kind of creep along the road. And then periodically I'd shine the spotlight down into a gully. In fact, we saw one of the biggest cougars I've ever seen down in this draw. And it was just sitting there looking at us like, come on down boys. <laughs> and then, uh, we drove along this log that was on our left side and it was right about window height. And there was a bobcat right there walking, you know, just on the other side of the glass. But, you know, the sound of the vehicle didn't seem to bother much. It was the light that, you know, they see the light and they were gone. They, you'd never see anything. Hmm. I, <clears throat> I do know, I, I've always heard that uh, even if you're not seeing big cats, they're there and they're watching you. Yeah, you bet they are. <laughs> they are masters of stealth oh yeah you know there's a there's another big thing in the woods same i think the same thing applies you almost never see them but if they're there they see you and their name starts with big but it's not cat well and that's the thing you know like you mentioned you know the the people going out wanting to be stealthy to find them it's really not necessary because they're going to be aware you're there anyway so exactly you know pay pay more attention to your surroundings yeah and you know it's almost like it's almost like everything that we do in life we occasionally screw up and i honestly think that that is where the bigfoot footage comes from and that is when a bigfoot has screwed up and it wasn't paying attention and wasn't being stealthy and wasn't aware of its surroundings and it screwed up and allowed someone to see them right or it did it intentionally and they just happen to have a camera of some kind. Could be. Could be. I don't. Yeah, I, don't, I think I that's. Don't. Well, that's sort of the case with uh, the famous, you know, Patterson Gimlin film. Um, Will your your strong position on that is that wasn't an accident, right? Right. Well, you know, and I, I've mentioned it before, but you know, it was it was known by all the principals at that time. There were three creatures in the area. There were three sets of tracks found by loggers. And uh, Patterson and Gimlin were there for three weeks. Never saw anything. Obviously, the creatures knew they were there because they were out on horseback every day. And and I think, and I'm I'm pretty sure, at least my, my belief system supports it, uh, that they were in, in an ambush. It was trying to draw them into an ambush. Because it was standing there waiting in the open. Uh, and it would have heard them. You know, people say, well, you know, there's water in the creek. It wouldn't have heard the horses. Well, if they knew Bluff Creek, um, it's about 13 miles long from headwaters to where it dumps into the Klamath River. And it's not that big a creek anyway. What You get seven miles upstream from the mouth where they were. At the end of uh, October, October 20th, there's no water in the creek up there. And if there is, it's a very, very small amount. But I've been there many times. It's dry that time of year up that far. So it would have heard them coming from quite a ways off, in fact. And it could have easily ducked into the brush and never been seen. But it stood there waiting for them. And then when, you know, Patterson gets off the horse and starts to come toward it, it walks away. 
and it turns to look back almost like to make sure they were coming or they were still there. So to me, that's a little little suspicious behavior. Well, they're definitely intelligent creatures, so <clears throat> I've, I've never heard a theory like that, but it makes sense. Yeah, I mean, you know, we know that Bob Titmus went there 10 days later, followed the tracks, um, and he said it went off for a distance beyond where they filmed it, and it went into a position where it was hidden, but it stayed for some time apparently watching the guys. And, and nobody ever looked for the tracks of the other two creatures. So there were two other ones that were larger. The one they saw and filmed was the smallest of the three. So, and just, you know, I've interviewed people for, well, for five decades. So, I mean, I've talked to thousands of people. And um, just the nature of the behaviors lends itself to that scenario. So, anyway, that's my thoughts on that. Well, you know, and that kind of dovetails. I, I, I didn't really connect the dots until you're talking about that. But the encounter we had a couple months ago uh, here in Oregon, it's they were, remember they were drawing us in. And then we'd go a little further and then they'd draw us in further and they'd draw us in further. They did by the vocals. They were, they were trying to get us to come that direction. Yes. And we heard them on, they were sort of in a horseshoe because they were starting to come in on both sides of us. Right. And say, made a decision to leave. <laughs> say you just described how a researcher gets lost. Right. Think about that. Right. They're luring you in. You got the adrenaline going. You're excited. You're listening to the vocals. And then next thing you know, you have your, your, your adrenaline's pumping and you're running through the woods after this. And then next thing you know, you're looking around and you're lost. Yeah. I mean... I- I've done this long enough where I don't get that excited and Dalton, the guy that one of the guys that was with us, who's real experienced too, you know, he and I were saying, no, 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 we need to, we need to back out of here quick. But, right. but you're and right. See, that's great. That's, that's good that you know how to do that. But how many other, uh, oh. amateur researchers would, what would they, they go, what would their reaction be? Oh, I've watched, I've watched people like the BFRO. They literally run in the direction instead of carefully, you know, moving in the direction of what you're looking at and seeing what you're going to see. You know, you mentioned being lost. My Tom mentioned my background. Uh, I was a cavalry scout in the army for 10 years and, uh, you know, land nav is, was our bread and butter. So, and we practiced often, um, especially, you know, with our pace counts and compass courses at night and, and, you know, I've seen every scenario of people getting lost. <laughs> oh, yeah. So and, and, and what got me lost, maybe. the one time I've got lost, we were picking chanterelle mushrooms, a buddy and I, right? Because we I was going to make spaghetti and for my wife and wanted to get some fresh mushrooms, right? So I knew the area to go to. And uh, we were paying more attention to the ground looking for mushrooms instead of the terrain. So we went a couple of these little knolls. I have five or six, probably too many or more than I was paying attention to. I always had in my mind, because uh, my background, when I when I go to a place, I'll do a, a uh, take a, I use topo maps pretty extensively, and, and I'll familiarize myself with the terrain before I go into a place. And uh, wasn't paying attention, wasn't counting like I normally do, you know, with the terrain features. So we got turned around, and I'm like, oh, crap, we're lost. And he sat down and was going to give up, started crying. And I said, screw that. I'm hungry. I got food in the car. And I, I headed down this little <laughs> gully and pretty soon there was a little, 
um, stream and, and, you know, we followed that down and hit the road. We were about five miles off, but, you know, it was better than not getting out of there. So I had lunch when I got back to the car. <laughs> you know, that 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 kind of underscores the psychology of some people. They get lost and they just, just sat down and gave up. Yeah, instead of saying, oh, okay, all right, this is what I do. Okay, what do I do now? This is what I need to do. Yeah, keep keep your cold. Don't panic. Don't freak out. You're you're the only one that's going to get you out of there. <clears throat> I'll say this: when you talk about y'all did the night navigation, uh, you're you're a thousand times more skilled than I am because me never being in the military and just doing this civilian wise, mm-hmm. I've always avoided traveling at night. I know the military has to. Well, my job but, that's when we worked was nighttime because my we were called the eyes and ears of the combat arms. Our job was to sneak up on an enemy. You know, and and yeah. oftentimes, you know, the cover of darkness is the best way to go. So you had to be able to do that. Right. Say so with 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 me, I just I just hike and try not to get lost. And when when I do get lost, I become unlost. <laughs> yeah. No. Well, what was the? Uh, you had a situation, and I, I just love it. You're doing night maneuvers. And that was at Fort, up in Fort Lewis. Yeah. And you had the you, you had the first gen or whatever it was. You had the night vision goggles. Oh. And one of these things ran in front of you, and then well, you did, guys had an interesting night. It, it didn't run. Um, we had the nomenclature was A and PVS fives. That was the first um, night vision goggles that the army came out with. This was back in 1980. Before that, they had the old starlight scopes, and they, they weren't very good. If it rained, you couldn't see anything. Um, so, you know, the PVS-5s were okay. They were they were a lot better than the starlights, but, uh, of course, they, you know, and they developed, and they got better years later. But uh, they gave me a, a set to go out and try, and uh, I had a 15-man squad with an air cav unit, and we were way out in the middle of nowhere on base, and I got a call from my boss, and he said, well... You guys can stand down. There's nobody, no aggressors. Nobody's out in your part of the base at all. There's nobody out there. You guys are the only ones. So you can do what you want. We'll come and pick you up in the morning. So I said, okay. Told the guys, all right, told my corporals to put put the men in position. We're going to practice ambushing. And this was at night. And I had my radio man, and I said, come on, let's go. We're going to get in, in between the two fire teams, and we'll we'll do some practicing here. So... I entered the tree line, and it was a pretty thick tree line. And you could see, but it wasn't great vision. You know what I mean? When it's really, really dark, and especially in a closed-in place with brush. And I walked in there, and there was it was like a giant sheet of plywood, this dark shape. I mean, a really dark shape. And it took a step to, one step to my left, it's right. And I about crapped. I, because I, I'd had a sighting. I ran into two of these creatures when I was sixteen, not far from there, and it just brought that vividly right back. And I'm telling the poor private, you know, get out, get out, get out, 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 out. I'm backing into him, you know, pushing him out of the tree line. And I hollered at my corporals to rally the men on me. I said, "All right, we're going to stand down. We're not going to do this. Just you know, sit down out in the middle of this open area." I said, "We're going to catch some Z's and we'll get picked up first light." So we're sitting there, and everybody's quiet. You know, I figured the guys are going to sleep. And one of the guys says, hey, Sarge, 
I thought there weren't any aggressors out here. I said, there aren't. Nobody's out here. He said, well, here's somebody walking around us. And then a couple of the other guys pipe up. Yeah, there's, there's somebody walking around us. And then one of the other guys says, hey, Sarge, you're from here. What do you know about Bigfoot? <laughs> <laughs> so I told him, you know, what I experienced as a teenager. And, and, I, and I mentioned, I said, I, I'll bet you all those guys would swear even to this day that's what was walking around the, the group. Well, and there have been reports, uh, you know, unofficial, but we've heard a lot of reports of, you know, Fort Lewis is the, these things are seen there from time to time. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But, you know, well, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. <clears throat> I, I'm, I'm still hoping to see a have a Bigfoot sighting one day. I haven't yet. Well, you, you know, I, be careful I'm what sure you wish for. <laughs> <laughs> well, from a distance. I would say, and, and the, some people that watch my videos, they're constantly, there's two or three people that are watching that are researchers, and there's a bunch of times that they've said, be careful in that certain area uh -huh. because they're seeing tree structures. Tom, Tom what was and, it we were saying, you know, from the old Jurassic Park movie? It says, but first there's ooh and ah, and then there's running and screaming. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> well... And in these areas, I have seen these tree structures, but I just thought they were a natural occurrence. You know, the big crossed over, like, look like a teepee and stuff. Yeah, but you know, I've I, never heard knocks. I've never heard of howls. I've never heard hoops. I've never seen tracks. I'm not. I'd say the only thing, y'all being experienced with this, you may know if this is real or not. But one time I saw a pine tree that had been uprooted and stabbed in the ground with the oh. root ball up straight up in the air i've heard that heard of that I, you know some things i mean like now I'll, I'll tell you like these structures you mentioned i i have my doubts about a lot of those i really do i mean because yeah. there's so much that happens naturally in the forest but right. now the part of the country you're in it could be something they do it's different here in the northwest uh i found things where you know, trees are broken over at 90 degree angles and in times of the year in places where it should not be and no other evidence of it. You know, I mean, there's no other thing that could have done it. Um, right. Here in Northern California, I found a ponderosa pine tree a number of years back that was uh, 12, 15 feet tall in the middle, in the middle of a stand of these things. There were probably 20 trees in that stand, all about the same age, middle of summer, the one in the middle was and they were probably you know three inch thick trunks young trees but this thing was wrenched it was twisted to the point where it was like you take a, a wash rag and, and wring it out that's how the trunk of the tree was uh you could see there were quarter inch gaps completely through the trunk of the tree you could see through it i don't know what else does that i don't know anything in nature that twists a tree no and there was no, there were no claw marks, no damage anywhere except where this thing was just wrenched. It was incredible. Dang. Of course, <clears throat> I, 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 I don't know anything naturally occurring in nature that would do that. And also, don't know of anything that would rip one out of by the roots and then shove it in upside down. Well, you know, we we did an investigation of a place back in eighty nine ninety uh, in southern Washington, and there was you you. Any, any day, you could see or hear things going on there. And I would go out. We wouldn't go out in the areas at night. We'd leave that alone. As soon as it was daylight, they were gone, and you could go out in there and look. So I used to make a habit of going out looking all the time. 
And one morning I found, in fact, the area's all grown up with trees now because this was, you know, quite a while ago, but it had all these little saplings that were, you know, three to five feet high. And along this one trail, these things were just yanked out indiscriminately, dozens of them going along the trail. Now, if anybody's ever tried to pull them little trees out, good luck because uh, they're rooted in pretty tight, you know, little dug firs and, and alder trees. And they were just yanked out like it was nobody's business. Uh, why they did it, I have no idea. And you got to wonder, even, you know, I remember, Will, let's see, last summer I sent you uh, some pictures. We found about a dozen and a half of these probably 18 to 24-inch um, some of them 12 inch, but little dug fir trees that have been pulled up by the roots. So the roots are into the ground, out of the ground, just pulled up, you know, good luck with that. You know, grab a little tree like that and pull it out. That's not going to happen. Right. I was going to ask you too, David, if you had any recommendations for people, I mean, if you're just a casual person going out hiking or, or, or what have you, whatever you're doing out there in the forest. Any things you should take with you just, you know, I, I don't know about necessarily survival things. I, I always keep things in mind. I mean, like, you know, a space blanket or um, some bullion cubes or whatever, some some little things, um, you know, magnesium bar to start a fire with, things like that. Any suggestions for people? Things they could just stick in their pockets. Well, the number one, without a shadow of a doubt, is some sort of a canteen or even a flask. And they sell those military, the little olive drab flask is called a pilot's flask because uh, I'm pretty sure where y'all are at, you've always got creeks and streams, but there are certain areas where there isn't any water. So water is a must. You definitely absolutely positively have to have uh, water with you if you're hiking if in the woods. And then if it's going to be cold weather, always carry a jacket or like you say, you can carry a survival blanket, but they really don't do much. Uh, in the summertime, you need to carry a bug net for your hat or preferably a bug jacket because they take up very little space. Uh, always carry a compass for your direction and navigation. Uh, I would say, yes, carry a ferro rod because matches and lighters don't always work. Uh, if you're a hiker, you need to learn how to use a ferro rod. Always have a knife. And if it get, it get uh, wet too. Yeah. If they get wet, you can forget about it. You could take a ferro rod and throw it in the creek and it ain't going to hurt it. You'll be able to strike sparks up and have a fire in no time right. because <clears throat> fire, uh, warms you, boosts your morale. It can be used for signaling. It can use for cooking food. And it can be used for purifying water. So it has multiple, and it can also keep away certain predators at night. Uh, so, yeah, fire is very important. Uh, depending on what what part of the world you live in, also depends on, is gear dependent. Because, like I say, there's certain areas that the, the bugs will eat you alive. And so you may want to carry a full-on bug net. Uh, but as far as things in your pocket, basically, yeah, water, fire, some sort of cover of some kind, uh, and, and definitely a signal device of some kind. You should always carry a whistle because if you're lost or if you fall into a 
a hole of some kind, you can probably scream for help for about five minutes and then you'll be hoarse, but you can whistle for hours and hours and hours. And whistles are great signal devices. Uh, doesn't hurt to carry a small mirror, but if you've got a mirror in your compass, that's a good signal device right there. Flares are fantastic because if you can carry a flare in your pocket, if you're lost and you've been lost for a full day, then maybe they're going to have a, a plane going overhead. And in search and rescue, the planes don't just fly over. They do a grid where they come back and forth. So if you've been lost for over a day or, or a couple of days, whatever, if you think they might be searching for you, once a plane goes overhead, you can take the flare and shoot the flare up and they'll pick up your location. Uh, another thing, if you have to, you can start a fire with the flare. And then another thing is if you're in bear territory, if you see a bear and it's got cubs with it, have the flare ready if the bear looks in the least bit like it's going to charge you can light off that flare and if the bear charges you'll have something to stick right in its nose or if you're willing to if you're willing to they say you can light off that flare and run at the bear screaming and the bear will leave now i know a lot of people won't do that but if the bear comes at you and if you manage to get that because I don't know how fast you can be with the bear spray or how accurate you can be. Some people have been known to spray themselves. But when you've got that road flare burning, if you stick it right at that bear's nostrils and it gets a whiff of that burning sulfurous smell, it's going to turn around and leave. I, I'll tell you what, if somebody running at me screaming with a rip flare in their hand, I'd run too. <laughs> <laughs> I was about to say, I'm going to try that next time I see a bear, just to see if it works. And David, I'll let you know if you don't hear from right. me well. But yeah, just the basics of life like that. And another thing that's great, too, is uh, these. Uh, <clears throat> there's a step above the Mylar file, uh, emergency blankets. Uh, there's a company called Grabber, called Grabber All-Weather Blankets. Are y'all familiar with them? I'm, I'm not, no. Okay, well, it's it's a step above a regular common space blanket because those space blankets tear very easily. And uh, an all-weather blanket, you can take that and you can fold it up and put it into a butt pack or a fanny pack. Or you can even fold it up and put it underneath your canteen in your canteen pouch. And those are great because it could be a ground cover. It could be an overhead cover. You can wrap up in it. Uh, it's kind of similar. I would, if I had to uh, compare it to something, I would say it would probably be similar to a GI poncho with no hood. And y'all, I'm sure you're well aware of how versatile the USGI poncho is. Oh yeah, yeah, because it can it it you can wear it or it can be a part of the shelter. You can wrap up in it. Uh, if you've got a whoopee, you can turn it into a ranger roll and sleep in oh, it. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. The, the all-weather blanket is another good thing. But you also have to think about the time of year, and you have to think, is it going to be raining? Is it going to be snowing? Is there a chance that uh, there's going to be ice? Is there not going to be any water? Is it a drought? Is it summertime? Is there going to be bugs everywhere? Is the place going to be littered with with uh, uh, spiders and scorpions? And, see, I, I don't know – Y'all being over there on the, the west coast, 
it's like you say, I'm going to bring a space blanket because if I get lost at night, I'm going to wrap up in this space blanket and I'm going to lean against the tree. Well, that might be applicable there, but you have to think about like in a place in Georgia. Yeah, it depends on where you are. Georgia, yeah, in Georgia in the summertime, what you want to do is you want to put a net hammock in your cargo pocket of your pants and carry it with you because uh, there's been people that have been bit by, well, this place is ate up with spiders and brown recluses. Mm -hmm. And if, if a, a, uh, the black widow, if it bites you, it'll affect your central nervous system. And if a brown recluse bites you, it'll rot a hole into wherever it bites. Mm -hmm. And the ground is littered with them. So the last thing you want to do is fall asleep. And <laughs> this, the same thing with these, these, these people that are saying these, these survival experts that they're saying, pile up leaves and then crawl inside them <laughs> you know you, you, you can do that you can do that when it's below like 40 degrees but you don't want to do that like oh it's summertime it's going to get cool at night well you're going to crawl into a pile of scorpions and and, and spiders and all things that are going to bite right, you so right it's good to carry a hammock. Get up off the ground. Don't don't sleep on the ground. And the ants, the ants are ferocious. Oh, uh, yeah. You get enough ants on you, and it can it can for certain people it could send you into anaphylactic shock. And uh, that that's 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 a horrible thing to do when you're lost. Yeah, absolutely. Just, well, listen, they um they don't have the the fire ants in the Pacific Northwest, but what we have in the springtime, well, you can vouch for this. Are mosquitoes the size of hummingbirds? Oh yeah, by the millions. Oh yeah, <laughs> they're not fun. Yeah. No, no, no. They'll eat you alive. Hey, David, I really appreciate it. We we're running short on time, um, but I I gotta thank you for accepting our invitation and just you got some great information. Uh, we're gonna put a link to your website and uh, your channel uh, in the description, and I think we're gonna have you back at some point. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That'd be great. It, that'd, it's that'd valuable great. information. That's something I really wanted to put out to listeners. You know, aside from our topic, is just the basics of being in the outdoors. You know. Oh, absolutely. And and uh, th this kind of stuff, it, it doesn't matter if you're a, a backpacker, camper, a bushcrafter, a survivalist, or a Bigfoot researcher. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter. If you're in the woods, you need to pay attention to your surroundings, and you need to know where you're headed and you need to lo know your location at all times and you need to know the dangers and regardless of the stuff you've seen on tv that the survival shows depict where the people are out there and they're naked and they get lost and the first day they're acting like they're starving to death and they got to go trap <laughs> for food yeah that's all nothing TV. could be yeah that's tv that's nothing could be further from the truth you need to pay attention to protection from the elements and the number one rule is stay hydrated. Absolutely, because you know you can't go more that than three a, days without water. Oh yeah, and the thing is, is actually once you've gone twenty four hours with no water, you've got such a severe headache. Right. Your 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 mechanical skills are slowing down, and your mental functioning is slowing down. And once your mental functioning slows down, how are you going to navigate your way back out of there? Yeah, you got problems then. Yeah, without a doubt. But uh, I love what y'all y'all do. Uh, people that have the time to do the research y'all do, I respect it because I'm a normal guy and I still work every day and I barely have time for anything. And so I just think it's absolutely fascinating that you can devote the time to the research. 
and I think it's great, and I, I, I respect that. So well, it's, I really, it's a lot of fun uh, uh, until it isn't. <laughs> <laughs> until it isn't, yeah. <laughs> well, I, I mean, know, know your game and know know where you're going, what you're doing, what to expect. Uh, you know, I just... I don't know. It's just the, the subjects could go on and on and on. And one of my favorites, I consider myself a camper bushcrafter, but survival, wilderness survival is, is an absolute passion of mine. And, and it really wasn't until I started seeing all the garbage depicted on the TV shows. Oh, yeah. Like that guy, Bear Grylls, you know, yep. he was like, jump into, jump into this water and, you know, squeeze water out of this elephant dump yeah when he starts just every, when he starts drinking his own pee i was done watching him <laughs> absolutely absolutely there's other ways of getting water you bet that could is. be a, that could be an hour-long discussion there just how to get water in the wilderness well we definitely do but, need to do some follow-ups because there's I, there's i like i said i wanted to put this stuff out for listeners uh because it's really important it's a must you have to know this stuff folks well, yeah, you can't have people just wandering off. Like, perfect examples that uh, Christopher McCandless guy, mm-hmm. the guy that went and lived into a, a bus, and was it Alaska? I think. Um, I, I recognize the name, yeah, but I can't remember. I, I can't associate the story. Was, oh well, he was the guy that he was like all his life. He worked in a office, and he dreamed of being living in a wilderness, and so he sold everything and bought a couple of survival type wilderness manuals and then he just hiked off into the Alaskan wilderness and oh boy. found an old abandoned bus and went inside it and then he was going through these books and you know turns out that uh you know poison hemlock doesn't quite look like it does in the pictures oh, no. <laughs> and he got really sick and he got sick to the point where he couldn't function anymore and they found him dead in the bus oh my god yeah that's a pretty famous story Oh, and once again, that other woman, her name was Geraldine Largay. And I may not be pronouncing it right, but y'all can read up on the story of that. And yes, people get lost. And yes, it can happen to you. So be diligent about where you're at, your location, where you're headed. Know where you're at at all times. Absolutely. All right, fellas, listen, we're going to wrap it here. Folks, stay tuned for the next segment. In Bigfoot history, P.L. Prairie, Washington State, before the white man came. Forty years ago, longtime residents of Washington State were interviewed for a book titled Told by the Pioneers. In it, P.H. Roundtree tells that the Indians would not go to the P.L. Prairie until after Roundtree family settled there because a big skookum or hairy man came and drove all the Indians away that were living there. Welcome back from the break, everyone. Um, Paul is joining us. Paul was on uh, some time ago. I can't remember exactly how long ago, but Tom, do you want to uh, begin uh, this segment? Absolutely. Paul, thank you for coming back on the show. A privilege, gentlemen. Thank you so much. I believe the episode I was on 
was uh, 77. The title is called I Could Feel It Through My Handlebars, if anybody wants to check it out. And you also interview the guy from that um, documentary, um, Deep Fur, on the same episode. And he's really, really great. I forget his name. Name doesn't really come to me, but it's, it's a en- really enjoyable episode. Yeah, it's a good episode. And I believe we also had one of your uh, – we had we had the judge on the show with you, yes. I think. Yes, he yes. was. Yeah, yeah, Tony was on. So, Paul, I'm going to go ahead and hand the mic to you. But, you know, like we said, this is just kind of an open forum, and just uh, we're just going to do a roundtable for questions. Great. Well, you know, I, I, I know that there, there's a lot of questions that come up in the uh, in the Facebook group. And um, I think it, it would be, um, you know, not not to just, you know, make it nonstop questions, but there are some issues that that have come up, you know, that, that I that I personally find kind of interesting. One and um, I, we, I have discussed this with uh, with Tom before, but we didn't really it wasn't on the air is in your experience, Mr. Jevening, do you think that maybe at a state level, at a federal level, or even at, at a more community level, there are individual, when a determination is made that there is a problem Sasquatch um, stalker being taken, or maybe even in the case of a missing person, is there any sort of organization, not so much organization, but anything that has been organized to go in that is kind of maybe hush-hush or not, not common knowledge, to uh, neutralize the creatures that are becoming a problem? Um, ballpark answer, no. Okay. Um, you know, some of these things, you know, these creatures move around a lot, and I think a lot of times when they go into a place and are problems, either, you know, the human activity, whether it's, you know, locals out doing things, you know, they change up their behaviors. That's one of the ways to kind of get rid of these things if they are a problem, is they watch as keenly, they pick out patterns, and if the patterns remain the same, then they will continue to be there and ramp up their behavior. But if the behaviors change, it throws them off, and, and it can kind of discourage whatever it is they have in mind, and they'll move on. Mm. Yeah, yeah, because, I mean, a lot of people, when they when they try to, to, to rationalize, I know I'm guilty of this, when you try and, and and rationalize or try to understand, put yourself in the mind of a Sasquatch for, for a moment, I know that we, I think we realize that, you know, that these creatures from an evolutionary standpoint are so in tune with their environment that, 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 that humans sometimes can't even comprehend it. I, I'm not going to go so far as to start, you know what I mean, be a flute player about all of it, but if you look at the average attention span of the average American from, you know, all the overstimulation in, in the world, it's a small wonder that, 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 that you know, that, that they are able to remain as, as hidden as they do. Well, you have I, to remember, they're not just a dumb animal bumbling around. Right, right. So that's the point I was trying to make. Yeah, yeah. they're very consciously aware uh, of their surroundings, what's going on, interactions, you know, with humans and, and other animals. So they're very careful about what they do. Everything yeah. they do has a purpose. So, um, you know, that's kind of old, old thinking that some of these people have that these are just dumb animals bumbling around the forest, and that's not the case at all. Right, right. Well, we've also talked about you can be 
20 or 30 feet away from one of these things, if you're walking along, a, you know, maybe a trail or a, or a road and there's a tree line there, you could walk right past them. People have probably done it far more than anybody's aware. And the creature's there. It knows you're there. It's watching you. But you had no idea that, that you're in the presence of one of these things. Yeah, it happened to me when I had my first encounter. I apparently walked right by one of them that wasn't very far away and walked into the other one. So, and something to remember, too, is they're very touchy about, um, you know, their, I'm trying to think what to call it. Uh, when they come into an area to feed and then whatever it is they're doing when in there for those couple of weeks, you know, the pattern that they have established, if there's too much of a disruption in that pattern, in other words, by a lot of human activity going on there, they'll change that pattern and, and they may not ever come back to that location, you know, during that part of their their movement cycle. You know, one thing, I, I, without bringing the missing 911 phenomenon into this too much, you know, we you see, there was recently a news story the other day, I saw that there, a child had gone missing, I don't know exactly where, I think it was back east, and the child, a toddler, was missing for 13 to 14 days in the wilderness and was found um, unharmed. Now, now, there, people have, have, have postulated, gee, are Sasquatch caring for these creatures? And a, the thing that had crossed my mind is I had, was listening to something that was on Missing 911, and they talk about a toddler who had gone missing, and then shortly after that, this toddler was seen on a very high precipice on the rocks, not far from there, which made me think that maybe a large creature had picked up this child, carried it up there, and the child's pieces of the child's body were found years later. Do, what do you think? I mean, is, is it fe, a female? Is it a female instinct? Do you think that that nurtures these missing children? And why does some of these kids go missing and not others? I mean, do you have a theory on that? Well, a lot of animals will prey on young and the old and the sick. Um, uh -huh. it, it's kind of what they do. So. You know, looking at it from that lens, it's possible, sure. Um, in the case of small children, could be could be cats, could be a number of things. You know, when they vanish and they're they're never found, or you know, parts of them are found later. Um, I guess you'd have to know about, you know, if there were any sort of markings on bones, things like that. What could have done it? Um, but you know, if the creatures were doing that, it wouldn't be. A common behavior it would be sort of uh, uh, a rare thing because like I say you know they they are an apex predator in my opinion and um, you know often, so you, you mean you mean you mean the the nurturing and protecting of one for an extended period of time right, would be a rare thing. right okay yeah I, I think it. that would be a very rare occasion right and it doesn't necessarily I mean I, I'm saying uh, it doesn't necessarily a Sasquatch it doesn't have to it could be any one of a number of things oh sure you know, absolutely be, and yeah. and humans you know are pretty resilient even as young children i mean it just um i guess you'd have to know the whole context of a situation to understand what happened yeah and i don't i'm the first to admit i don't so yeah, yeah i think a lot of people jump to conclusions you know out right. there in, in the bigfoot world and without really kind of sitting back and and giving all those pieces some real thought. Mm. 
You know, I forwarded a story um, to Tom, and I, I would like to, to forward it to you too. I, I have already gone on record about my opinion to about crypto hominid um, being on the British Isles, but I recently saw a, a news story. It was one I wanted you to look at it, and it included um, a, a, a photograph, and it was taken in the northern reaches of of Saskatchewan, and I got to looking at a map. And, you know, and, and if we pretty much take, you know, take uh, for granted that, that the, the um, Yeti, and it makes perfect sense to me, is a real creature, why couldn't it be in, a, in, in the, 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 uh, in the, the, you know, the most northern reaches of Saskatchewan? It seems, seems logical to me. Absolutely. You know? Yeah. Oh, yeah, no doubt. Yeah. And there's also a story that I wanted to forward to you that I didn't have a sh chance to share with um, with Tom. There is a story in Pakistani mythology that is very much like the Sasquatch, and I, I would think because there's an incredible control. I mean, you know, a lot of governments control the media, but they really do in Pakistan. And there's not going to be a a crypto hominid international on, in, on internet crypto hominid community. For Pakistanis, I wouldn't think, but there it seems like a pretty solid theory. Well, I have a friend who's English, um, who actually works in northern India, and, mm -hmm. and he's got a lot of contacts there. And and he, and oh. it's it's the Yeti that's in that those regions. See, the Yeti isn't just in Nepal and those regions. Um, oh. There's some very heavy forests throughout that entire part of the world, and mm -hmm. and that's the creatures we're talking about. Um, and he says that. You know, his local contacts in the military and, and elsewhere uh, very openly talk about these creatures to him. And, and apparently they're very uh, brazen. You know, they don't care about making their presence known and, and locals fear them quite a bit, actually. You know, I'm aware a lot of the members of the military really enjoy the podcast. Well, oh, and, well that's uh, good. <laughs> yeah. And, 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 I, um, a lot of them I've heard stories of something I'm sure you know about this it's something called the jinn yes and and there's also a very interesting story about the the red-haired giant of Kandahar there's a lot of um, names about these creatures everywhere around the planet it would be you know I would be great if at some point we there was a guest on the show you you know we could find a a, a, mil, a member of the military who might have either encountered these or maybe you know had a it was in country and heard other troops talking about i just find it a fascinating story i really do i i do know i do have one friend who was there and, and talked about that but i don't know if i can get him to talk about it on the show or not yeah of course of course i mean you know it, it is the military that probably don't really encourage that sort of thing yeah that's that's true i mean you know the years i spent in the military you know was never brought up but um you know, the, the people I worked with, the officers, you know, they, they knew what I was in, interested in and doing at the time. So, you know, they would tell me if they knew anything and some stories, not a lot, but, you know, they, they were mm. very open because we were friends, you know, so they were open about talking about it to me if they found anything out. Right. Yeah, I, I don't mean to be all over the map here. Oh, no <laughs> worries. No, That's what this segment's about. Great. Another question that, 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 you know, my wife and I had spent a long time talking about this subject is, you know, you were the one who had made, made me aware of the, of the potentially four types of Sasquatch in North America. Um, now, at some point, if, if these if these aren't a truly migratory beast, there still would have to be 
areas where the creatures overlap, right? Or, or, are, they, or are they all separated by natural boundaries? Well, you know typically, I mean? there... what, what divided them in originally would have been natural boundaries. In other words, mm-hmm. uh, the gene pools would be separated. So, you know, one one type would begin, you know, favoring different adaptations while another would do the same thing in a di- maybe a different direction. So there are, are number numerous variations. Uh, okay. Occasionally... Like we we had a couple from Alabama, um, you know Tammy and her husband James, you know had a situation going and and it's a real kind of a focus on what you're what you're asking. Uh, in their location, there were at least two different types there, and mm-hmm. one was very much like what you see in the Patterson film. It was probably a type two, which they're very similar in appearance. Um, some physical differences, but in general appearance similar. Uh, it was, they were observing it in a, I think it was in a field, uh, near some timber and two or three other creatures approached, apparently not being aware that this creature was there and they were, you know, very physically different looking. Um, would that be potentially the skunk, the the skunk ape type that we see in Florida Um, interceding with him, intersecting with him there? It's possible. Yeah. Uh, but apparently the, uh, the first individual, when it saw the, these other individuals approaching, they said, got a very disgusted look on its face and the other three, apparently whether it, you know, sent or whatever became aware of the first creature's presence made, made an about face and a very hasty retreat. So this sort of indicates to me that, you know, these various types don't, uh, don't associate well with one another. Or it's territorial. It's hard saying. Yeah, and, and you know, I just found that interesting, Will, because there's no, you know, naturally think there'd be some sort of cross pollination, but you know, you think about, you know, apparently black tail and white tail and mule deer are, you know, they stick with their own mm-hmm. well species. Well, something you know, when I was in college taking my psych courses, and, and a lot of those were neurobiological courses. Uh, they talked about that, how species are generally hardwired to um, be attracted to things that look like themselves, you know, more than not. I know, I know among humans, we try to, yeah. we try yeah, to, yeah, I was going to say, we, we, you see that in human behavior sure. for well, sure. We, we try to blur the lines, but it's kind of, it's kind of something that's hardwired into us. It's not, and it's, and it's all about passing your genes on, you know, it's not something we're consciously yeah. aware of. It's just what we do. And, and all animals do that. So, so Will, let me ask. So, do you think that the the four types they would not like be um, congruent with each other? Uh, it's a possibility. Sure. I mean, you know, it does happen in nature. I think for the most part, they probably stay separately. But uh, but occasionally, you know, there is overlap. So. Uh, you know, we do see some types that are from a different region. Let's say, you know, the type one, like we have out here in the West coast, you know, occasionally are seen in different parts of the country. So, you know, not large numbers because, you know, these concentrations are still geographical, but on occasion, you know, they are seen elsewhere. You know, in in some ways, um, the, well, in all, in definitely, um, our news media, our traditional news media is very Amerocentric and justifiably so. Mm-hmm. But 
Um, you know, unfortunately, that kind of happens in the Sasquatch community, too, with the exception of Canada, because there has to be, if you look at a topographical map of Mexico, this, of, of the, the entire nation of Mexico, these creatures have to live in Mexico. Now, of course, they're in provincial areas, and of course, they don't have quite the Internet access in the provincial areas in Mexico, I wouldn't think. I don't know this for sure, as we do here in the United States. Is that the only reason you think we're not getting any data out of Mexico? Or do you think that there's more of a, a, a real concerted effort? Or is it the presence of the, the heavy religious presence? There has to be a reason. Yeah, I mean, I, I did talk with a woman years ago uh, who was from Mexico, and, and she related a story when she was a child where, and it was kind of a pretty frightening story, actually, sure. uh, her parents, yeah. and I, I want to say it was a pickup they were driving and and her and her siblings were riding in the back and one of these creatures was actually chasing the truck trying to get the kids and you wow. know fortunately they they were able to outrun the creature but um mm. you know so we do know they're there you know they're in central america and they're in south america uh, but why we're south not america. getting reports out of mexico I'm, I'm really not sure i mean it could be a combination of those things you mentioned yeah. Well, well, haven't we had a couple of reports where, you know, like the Rio Grande will dry up and right. people will actually see these things kind of migrating back and forth? Well, I don't know about migrating. Or not migrating, but, you know, they'll see them moving. See, I, I don't like the term migrate. Migrate says yeah, it's moving yeah. from one region to another, like geese, you know, and, and things like that. The Sasquatch doesn't migrate. They have very, very large ranges. And they, they move very similar to how gorillas move throughout their ranges and it's to different feeding areas. And they make they have different cycles, and it's different depending on the terrain features of those different regions. Um, they are territorial. They will mark their territories, but the territories do overlap. So, uh, And because, you know, you have relatively small number in a very large area, it doesn't seem to affect, you know, the relationship between the different groups in those regions. So... But um, yeah, it's it's it looks like migration, but it's really not migration. They're they're just simply rotating throughout their their cycles in their um, their home ranges. Yeah, that was, I knew that was a wrong choice of words. <laughs> but but in as far as that area, uh, and like you know, our, our friend who's a police officer, TW, in southern New Mexico, you know, which is near the Rio Grande, and there's activity in that area, quite a bit of activity actually, and and. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, it's right on the Mexican-American border, so there has to be, you know, they don't know borders, so they cross those areas. So, Will, let, let me ask you uh, real quick. I, I know that you, we, we've talked about this before, but how large are their range? Oh, boy. Um, I don't know about all of them or how consistent it is, but the, the group that I, and, you know, I, I use the term track. And, and there's been a few people make silly comments on YouTube, but, oh, you couldn't couldn't possibly be out there tracking them all that time. Uh, you know, you, you track by more than just being out there following them around in the woods, right? You know, you can you can plot on a map areas of activity, and, and I would go and check up on uh, where I suspected they were going to be based on some patterns that developed, and I could plot within 30 days in their entire range. So that range... At that time was about 3,300 square miles, and 
since then I've learned it was actually larger because it encompasses parts of Northern Oregon as well. So, well, that brings up a, a, a real good question. You've talked about it in the past, but their ability to cross a pretty significant body of water, such as the uh, the Columbia River, um, and you've you said they do do that from time to time. People witness that. Is that right? Yeah, locals talked about it to me over the years. There, sure. There was a couple places. One in particular that was a regular crossing point. Locals would see him swimming there all the time, they said. Yeah, that would be a real interesting uh, thing to witness. Yeah, yeah, that's amazing. So, Will, uh, also another great point that you made, um, they do swim because I know that, like, uh, you know, gorillas and other primates, they don't like water, but these things actually do swim in, in in water yeah that's true but they're they're not um well they're not gorillas and chimps you know i i was just spent about a week up in the bluff creek area and um i didn't realize till i got there how extensive the fire damage was right. from these re- recent fires there was a lot of, I mean, to get, to get anywhere for me, just to get from, from where our cabin was to Hoopa was an extra hour and a half because of pilot car situations and, and that sort of thing. But because when, when these large fires happen, you talk about these huge swaths of land that, that, that are their ranges. Do you think these fires disrupt those ranges and, and cause them to have to go to areas to, to hunt that they maybe never have hunted before well you know they they've been exposed to forest fires for millennia right i mean it's not right. something new to them so i'm sure they have you know things just like other wildlife does you know they have things that they do when those kind of things sure. happen i do know they take advantage of forest fire when they're going because of the chaos that deer and other animals you know causes them because they're they're not doing or being as careful as they normally would so it's sort of a might be an attractant to them you know because the deer and other animals are going to run like crazy and it's easy easy pickings basically right right that makes sense that makes perfect sense you know of the four groups of one of the types of sasquatch that i find most fascinating are the what they call the desert sasquatch there was a guy, a gentleman on YouTube. I don't remember his. It might, it might, his YouTube channel might be Desert Sasquatch, I believe. And I thought that, you know, he's a very, um, I didn't think he was telling the truth at first. And, you know, I, I watched all of his videos and then I got to one that had screams in the background, you know, at a distance. And the fear that this man had I, would have been very hard to fake. And there's obviously it's there's no forests out there. Do, well, I guess I, I'm I'm taking the long way around to ask you is, do you think consistently they use caves as as a as a place to keep their young to, or, or do they or is it more about building structures? Do you think it, you know or is it? I don't think they do either. Really, I mean sometimes sometimes they might be caves, but I've been in areas all up and down the coast where there's lots of caves and never seen any kind of evidence that anything inhabited those caves, and you would see some evidence. Okay. 
Um, but these structures are are all BS. You're saying? Yeah, you know, <laughs> I, I one of our one of our friends who who unfortunately passed away, Win uh, Lindquist mm-hmm. at the uh, Flathead Reservation, uh, told me one time. He says, you know, he says people find structures, and he says, you know, a lot of times hunters will make a structure out of what's there. In other words, you you carry you carry things. Um, try to be as lightweight as you can if you're going to be hunting a long distance. You're you're what you're way ahead of me, yeah. So, because people have said to me that's just a hunting blind, right? So you so, you'd carry a tarp in your pack maybe because it's lightweight, mm-hmm. and you just take some right. branches and you do things with them, and then you drape the tarp around it. When you you stay there, you have a nice little nice little uh, comfy place to sleep, and then when you're ready to move on, you take the tarp and you leave the structure. What would be the point of taking it down, right? Uh, that makes perfect sense. Now, Being a city kid, I wouldn't have thought of that. Yeah, I, I can't speak about the eastern part of the country because I'm not that familiar with the other, what the other types are doing. I mean, so I'll leave that question open until I can learn more about yeah. it, you know, maybe by being there. But uh, here yeah. in the West Coast, no. I mean, they they do markings, but it's nothing like that. They they're I mean, you, they do things that are very practical, right? Okay. Uh, so you're not going to waste a lot of time and burn a lot of calories doing something that doesn't make any sense or it's artistic or whatever, for whatever reason. It has to be functional in some way. So so they do poss- possibly use it as a means of communicating with each other, but not so much for shelter. No, they don't need shelter. Right. These things are very, very adapt at their surroundings. I mean, they're very comfortable in cold weather and... Uh, I mean, they right. survived the Ice Age comfortably or the various Ice Ages, and I'm sure they're just fine with that. They'll probably survive the next one. Sure. just fine, too. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I'm going to jump in real quick. We have a couple of listener questions, and one of them is we got a couple of them from uh, somebody named Dav. And this is actually a really interesting question. Uh, Dav says, we hear people say that they will not speak about an encounter very often where somebody's had an encounter with one and you know they're they're very reticent to come forward and the question he has or dav has is could this be ptsd sure it could absolutely it's a very traumatic experience um and there are many people who've had an encounter for every one that has that will talk about it who will not talk about it um i've had people you know, contact me, and I'm thinking of one in particular who was an artist and actually did a really um, great piece of art and sent me um, of, of what she saw, but um, we'll never talk about it. doesn't want her story out there anywhere. So um, it affects people differently. You know, everybody's psychology is a little bit different, so it really depends on how uh, it affects the person having that experience. And... Um, you know, while it is very therapeutic, it helps to talk about it. Most of the people we've had, for instance, on on this show and others that I've done, um, were oftentimes very difficult to, um, you know, convince that it was okay to talk about. It. But once they did, you know, almost universally, they've told me afterwards that it was like this this weight was lifted off their shoulders being able to talk about it. You know, from a psychological standpoint, I think it's a very deep-seated trauma memory um, with a with a variety of facets, right? I mean, here you're seeing this thing that is, you know, we know they're they're terrifying, and then it's what you've said time and again, it's 
it's outside of their frame of reference and just how do you deal with that and i think the big factor there you know besides being out of our frame of reference you know because we're not taught that there's such a thing or if anybody mentions it people always say well there's no such thing right it's all made up there's only one um what happens i think more often is you know we're taught i think from an early age that you know we're we're the top of the food chain on the planet when you encounter one of these things it's it's a sudden slap in the face that you realize all of a sudden you are not the top of the food chain what you're looking at is and i think that causes a, a psychological trauma yeah it sure does absolutely especially when they're looking at you and not only are you no longer top of the food chain you might be in the food chain exactly. at that moment yeah i mean myself included i think a lot of people have said that that all of a sudden they felt like um you know it could have been a very quick decision that you're the ham sandwich yes yeah exactly and i think there's you know i just suspect there's even more to it than just afraid of being a meal uh it's just it's everything about it's unnerving i think it raises a lot of subconscious questions and so it's um but frankly, to be honest with you, uh, I think that's part of what I find intriguing uh, about this topic. Um, Dav has another question, and I think Dav is talking about. And Dav, I apologize. I don't. I don't know whether Dav is uh, male or female. So Dav is wanting to know if Sasquatch was charging toward you, how would you react, and would you? How would you interpret that behavior? So I think we're talking about. Are you determining? He says, "Do you have a gun?" Uh, is this a bluff charge? What's what's your response? Typically, it's a mock charge. Um, you know, and I've talked to a number of people that have had mock charges done on them. And what happens is, and people think this all the time erroneously, is, you, you know, your brain is going to say, oh, I'm going to do something. It doesn't. You freeze. Um, even in my own case, you know, it was only after... Um, I was worried about how I was going to get out of the situation. I'm a little bit different than a lot of people. I think rationally first and then emotionally react later. I'm kind of reverse what a lot of people are. Um, but there are people I've talked to that, you know, they, they heard screams and, and things happened. And then, you know, they saw a creature emerge out of the edge of the forest, look at him and then make a dead run at him. And in each case, they told me, I, I must have been in shock. I just froze. I didn't move. And, and this happens with gorillas, too, when they do mock charges. If the person stands still, and almost, not always, but almost in every case, you know, the gorilla will break off the charge because you stand your ground. Uh, of course, if you run, that's a, that's a predator instinct in, in a lot of animals, and you're kind of toast at that point. But uh, yeah, I think instinct takes over at that point, or at least some form of shock does. Absolutely. You know, we don't know is for the charges that are not bluff charges we never hear from those people well nope you're not going to hear about that paul real quick um i got a question for you the term ham sandwich comes to mind it sure does it absolutely <laughs> <does>. right <laughs> um, happy, happy lunch <laughs> yeah and so you know i i've, I've thought about your case many times uh and in it 
in effect, um, real briefly, what you were doing is you worked for your uh, your grandfather's. He had like a, a sandwich shop or a meat shop or something like that. Yeah. And you would take these scraps and just dump them up in the hills. So in a sense, right. you were um, unwittingly habituating the creatures. Yeah, I, I, I clearly I clearly was. And, you know, it, there there are other factors. It wasn't until I stopped doing that 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 I had an issue. But you know, it's funny. I've gone back. I was a child when this happened. I've gone back and I've listened to a lot of of audio that's available on YouTube. And even before I did this, uh, you know, I, I, I there was coyote, I mean, literally, the coyotes would come down at night and knock over every trash can. They were they were pack hunters. People couldn't have cats in the neighborhood, and so I've heard it, it, it postulated that that that, that Sasquatch and there there were also deer, so it would be a good environment for them. And I I would have sworn I heard screams on more than one occasion. Looking back, that's a lot. You know, I was a kid. I you know I had no idea what was going on around me at the time. Did you get a glimpse of the creature, or you just heard it pounding the ground? I didn't. I, I, I was aware that you see, here's you have to understand that I thought that I, I my mind immediately went to this is a person wanting to do me harm for some reason, you know, and no, I didn't. I took off on my bike and I, I felt like I was literally riding for my life, even after the fact I th- that was not what I thought at all. I had just experienced you know, and it's funny. I I just went back to Los Angeles and and I revisited the site where this happened. And unfortunately, you know, and and I think um, if you look at it now on, on Google Earth, you'll see that it, instead I I went to where the, the the trail was where this happened, and the trail isn't even there anymore because there's so much building going on up on the hillside now. It's essentially a parking lot and. Kind of makes me sad, you know, because I, I grew up in that on that part of the hillside and it was it was still, you know, wild country in those days and uh, it doesn't exist anymore. It's a drag. <laughs> yeah, it was interesting. It also it grabbed your bicycle. I'm just doing this to just kind of backfill folks that haven't heard your story. It did. Yeah, I, I dropped the bicycle when I got right to where the exit was. I dropped the bicycle and ran. My father went back to retrieve it and he was the one that it found it had been thrown lipped down this embankment into a culvert but not in, but it had literally been beaten on something very hard because this was an old Schwinn bike it was very strong something had had bent it and then threw it down this culvert so you know I want to interject so, something so, here a moment guys Tom mm-hmm. remember remember TW told us about the 15 year old kid in New Mexico where, where the creature was following exactly him what, and it grabbed yeah. the bike, it bent the frame and threw it up into a tree. Doesn't that sound exactly like Paul's experience? It does. And Paul, wasn't your bike, it wasn't just beat on, but it had, there was some damage done to it. And you're right. Those Schwinn, I had one as a kid, a Schwinn Stingray. It's made out of uh, rolled steel, tubular steel. I had one too. Very they were tough. Stuff. The, yeah. the handle the handlebars were were literally bent together. I mean, it, it was it was looked like it was done kind of quickly by something strong. They didn't go to, it, whatever it was. It didn't like 
there was no marks from where it was like beaten on with a hammer or anything. It, it looked like it happened reasonably fast. And my father was back up there in 15 minutes. So, so Paul, yeah. let, let me, uh, so this was in LA? Burbank, California. Wow. Okay. Yeah, because that, that's that's so interesting because, you know, I, I live here in Orlando and everybody thinks that, oh, well, the theme parks and everything. But but um, yeah, there are plenty of forest areas out out here. If you just go like like, you know, five minutes away. So it's kind of interesting. My, my wife was living in Orlando right before I met her and um, she she's a fisher lady and she. She spent a lot of time out there in the uh, in the in the um, in the swamp fishing and on the coast there. And it, it, it's it's a common th- everybody speaks about the skunk ape down there. You know, it's it, here here in, in in most quarters. It's thought of as if you're talking about, you know, Bigfoot, Sasquatch, you're, you're either crazy or you have a T-shirt to sell. But but down there, it's it's a, it's commonly you know spoken about. I'm told. I don't know. Is that true? Yes. Yes, it is. Yeah. Uh, I mean, p- people know about it and and everything, but um, and and Will probably knows a lot more about that than than I do. But um, no doubt. Yeah. <laughs> but but hey, Will, what have you heard about um, in the area of, of L.A. Um, and Sasquatch? Well, there were some older stories from the 60s. Um, you know, of course, I think, you know, in that region, people are focused on other things but and probably not thinking well something like that could be here but you get out in the, the angeles national forest and places like that you know certainly there could be well that's what i found um kind of fascinating will is the fact that you know paul lived in a uh, and you're you lived in a suburb suburban area but it was surrounded by rural um yeah I lived right at the edge of, of, of a reg- it was a regular suburban area, and it's still. If you were to look at the at the uh, at the GPS of it now, you would you could see exactly what I'm talking about. There's still a fence there. It's just above it now is being. This this is this was 19. I, you know, I I really did a good dig on when this actually happened, and it was 1971. It was the summer of 1971. I thought I was a little older, but no, it was 1971. So I don't know the famous Zubies story. That, wasn't that down in San Diego? Yeah, I think it was. I, I was thinking, you know, that one's one of the stories. Then there was the Speedway Monster, and um, I, I want to say that was closer to L.A. Hmm. Hmm. Speedway. Where was that near Ascot Park? <laughs> you know, I have to have to look it up. It's um, we actually oh. did. Uh, Jim Sower, I think, did one of the readings of that story for the show. But uh, I have to go back and look and see exactly where it was. Yeah, I I, I left Los, the Los Angeles area twenty years ago. But even at that point, the topography of of Los Angeles County has changed so much since the seventies. I, I want to say it was Fontana, which I think is L.A. I'm not sure. Yeah, what well, LA area isn't that? It's like out toward Riverside. I, th- I want to say. I think so. I, I believe that's the area where it was. There's going to be people listening to the podcast and going, "No, dummy!" But yeah, <laughs> let, let us know. I mean, you know, we're, we we like to be corrected if we're wrong. So uh, you know, if anybody's familiar <laughs> with that, let us know. You know, with this uh, Paul and everybody, this kind of underscores something that's real interesting about the creatures, is neighborhoods and civilization will kind of creep in and encroach on territory that's historically 
what the creatures consider, which is their territory. But as long as there's those little strips of land that give them cover and concealment, they can still be there. Un, undetected for the most part, except when you stop, you know, you go up there, you rode your bike up there and you didn't give them what they thought they're going to get, then they're going to they get a little bit annoyed with you. But, uh, but the point is, and Will, this talks about your encounter as well. You weren't in the mountains of the Cascades. You were in an, a very rural farmland area, but nonetheless, there was some civilization around. Well, I was just going to address that, you know, and I've spoken with a lot of other people um, who are in similar situations where, yeah, it's not, not in the mountains. You don't have to be up in the wilderness, you know, for Sasquatch activity. Um, where I lived and grew up, that was, it was a lot of forest around there. There was, you know, patchwork of, you know, open land pastures and things for farms, but there was also a lot of forest around there. Um, what attracts the creatures are like it would anything, you know, an easy meal, you know, especially farms and those kind of places, because like our barn was open on one side facing the forest you know, no more than maybe a hundred feet away from the edge of the tree line where I had my encounter. You know, we had all kinds of animal feed out there. Um, you know, chickens, everything else, pigs, you name it was there, you know, so that was an easy attractant plus apple trees and cherry trees. And our, we had a large garden. There was lots of things they could go to those kind of places to eat. The ponds all had catfish and other fish in them. Um, you know, there was deer elk would come down occasionally so, yeah, there's a lot to eat in those places. And, Paul, you mentioned, of course, you know, that you guys were putting, uh, you know, materials out there. They were probably coming and eating. And then, of course, coyotes and other animals that were attracted to that food also would be a food source for them. And, and deer. We, we see a lot of deer, I would think. Right. That was probably... They, do, do, uh, do they eat coyote as well? Sure they do. do they... Sure they do. I, I, oh, really? I spoke with a state trooper years ago that uh, found where they had killed a number of coyotes and apparently eaten them, and, and it, it unnerved him pretty badly. Wow. Yeah. You know, going back to the subject you were talking about before, when you were, we were talking, you're talking about your police officer friend that works in the border area. There have been, I mean, these are anonymous reports, of course, but I've written multiple non anonymous reports of people who claim to work for the Border Patrol, who claim to have seen things on the night vision that they use to track movement over the border that clearly wasn't migrants. Sure, that's very possible, know? yeah. I'd love to speak with yeah. people, you know, doing Border Patrol that may have seen something like that. And of course, you know, like with anyone we talk to, your anonymity is guaranteed. Um, you know, I'm not interested in outing anybody for publicity. We just are interested in hearing the accounts. You know, it's it's funny. Every t anytime I see somebody from the U.S. Forest Service, I was I was literally um, getting the oil change in my wife's car yesterday, a few blocks from here, and there was a U.S. Forest Service vehicle there. A gentleman was there for some reason. I, I, you know, I don't want to just seem like a like a lunatic, so I said nothing. But I so much want to go. Hey, you guys, <laughs> spill it. Well, you know, <laughs> like you got to remember, people who work in official capacities like that are just like anybody else. You know, they have their jobs, their families, their homes, their careers, everything they're concerned about. And yeah. my big interest is, I don't want to wreck anybody's life. 
you know, other right. people who have right, what they're doing and, and keep doing their routines the way they like them. Um, but we are interested in hearing what they've experienced. Yeah, do, do you think the climate of, uh, of, of, of keeping certain issues, you know, quiet, do you think it's more of a formula? It, it's the, it's the climate of the job or you think there's something formal? You think there's a piece of paper, look, you don't release any information that you encounter on the job, like an NDA? No, I think it's, I think it's more, you know, perception, from sure. you know it's it's the job it's not um because you, you remember you know, people say well the government it's not the government it's all made up of people in these different you know offices where they have a person in charge and and how their mm-hmm. view is things like that it's uh you know i sure. suppose if you had somebody in in a particular you know supervisory capacity it says oh yeah it's okay to talk about this i'm sure their employees would um, but oftentimes it might cause more problems with the public than anything else. So it's probably better said, well, yeah, we're just not going to deal with that. So, well, uh, let me ask you on, on that point. Do you think that more people would come forward if their profession was different? It's possible. Sure. Um, but then again, you have to remember it's the psychological part of it too. You know, there's many, many, I used to think many years ago, back in the nine eighties, nineties, I thought, and it was based on, you know, the population of Vancouver, Washington, where I lived at the time. Um, I, I was, and it was guesswork, and it, I can't remember how I arrived at the figure, but it had to do with the population size versus the number of reports I was getting. And I estimated probably 20 people would, who've had a, out of 20, 21 people have had a sighting, one person might say something, the other 20 would never say anything. But the numbers, the numbers probably much larger of people who would not talk about it. Yeah. Well, that's what I was thinking. I think it's probably a uh, that's a good, very conservative low number. And there's, I, yeah, I, I would agree. There's probably a lot of people that just. And something else that was interesting I learned during that time period, talking to people throughout that region, was that uh, there were more people having Bigfoot sightings than we're actually seeing bear in the wild. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah right. That's what I was going to say, Paul. That's a, that's interesting. There was that, that was is yeah. That was something that I, I I was like, wow, you're kidding me. These things are being seen more than bear are. But you know, I, I lived in that region for a dozen years or so, and I never saw a bear. Found tracks a couple of times, but never actually saw a bear. So next time I go back to Bluff Creek, besides taking a topographical map. You know, I rather I, I don't want to I don't want to make like I just have to find the Patterson Gilman site as like something I have to do. But if I wanted to to, to go on a, a good day hike, could, is there an area that I should look toward that, that you know that for a good day hike in, in that area? You know, I've got a guy up there that I'll put you in contact with. He he's you know born and raised in that area, knows it intimately, and I'll I'll have you uh, talk with him. Great. And he'll point he'll he'll uh, point you out an area. Great. We we really, my wife and I really fell in love with that area. That's, up there. Big, that's area. big country up there. Yeah, it is. I've spent weeks just navigating it, you know, learning my way around it. Oh, all up along the Trinity River, it was such a, such a beautiful place. I, you know, every every time, you know, I would go around a corner, I could just envision half a Sasquatch <laughs> sitting out of, the, you know, right. protruding out of the out of the lake, coming out of the river. Brian, Tom, do we have more questions or? Uh, okay, so so well, um, another question here: um, How did your first experience when you saw the the 
those two creatures compared to the next? Like, like, I mean, were you surprised when when you saw the, um, you know, the the next one? Or well, the character of both sightings were completely different. The first one, everybody wants everybody wants a sighting like the second one. You know, that was that was like the perfect conditions where you're in a car, there's a natural barrier between you and the creature, you get to see it, and then it's gone, right, without any repercussions. Unfortunately, that's the one that almost never happens. Uh, the one that almost always happens is like the first one where you walk in on something and you have the underwear changing moment. <laughs> The, the happy meal. The, the ha- yeah, the happy meal situation. <laughs> Happily, I well, was not I, a happy I think meal. The other one that's pretty interesting is, you know, two in the morning, group of guys walking up the road in the Cascades and getting surrounded by these things. That's, that is absolutely what everybody needs to strive for. <laughs> you know, I've had that happen a few times. It's never fun, ever. I have a question that I think a lot of people have on their mind. I think we've all heard the Sierra sounds. What are your feelings on Sasquatch having a a spoke a common spoken language? I don't think they have a common language. It's it's like other creatures, other primates. They can make the same kind of sounds, but it's group specific in terms of meanings. In other words, they don't they don't if they're not taught across the board. Um, you know, from one group to the next, what all these different things mean. It's it, the, the sounds mean the same for that group because that's how they communicate with one another. But if they were to encounter another think, group, they probably wouldn't understand what it is they're doing. Okay. Okay. Could these have roots going as far back to the Native American languages, or do you think it's something exclusively their own? I think it's exclusively their own. I know there's some yeah. people that might disagree with that, but I think it is. You know what I find interesting, Will, is is when you when you talk about you know it's it's group specific for the language, which which makes a lot of sense. It sort of flies in the face of these folks who go out and do call blasting. Of you know maybe they have a legitimate Bigfoot recording and they call blast it. You have no idea what you're telling this other group. <laughs> you may you may get a negative response. <laughs> well, and a lot of times they're making silly noises or just screaming. You know, and I'll tell you something. You know, when you're out there, and I've heard I've heard plenty of, of Sasquatch vocals over the years, and and we have plenty of recordings of them, you know, in our, in our files. Uh, some really good ones recently, in fact, a couple of them. Um, you know, when you, when you hear a person, you know that's a person by the tone of their voice. It's like when I mentioned about um, when we were talking yesterday with David about um, you know different animals out and about. Um, we just what I mentioned to him about you know something I learned during my coursework years ago was everybody likes to say well you know dogs are dogs sense of smell is far superior to humans they always throw that out there what they don't understand is that yes dogs sense of smell because of long snout they have a lot of receptors that scent particles go across and and their brains pick that up very easily however you can't compare that to humans because and here's the big difference. You know, we don't have as big a nose as a dog, so we don't have the long surface for those particles to go across the scent receptors, right? But what our brain, the brain is the important factor here. A dog can only identify about a dozen or so different senses. In other words, you know, make, make, the, make the difference between them. Humans can do 50,000 or more. 
and we can we can identify very very subtle differences between one odor and the next that might be similar to one another. So hmm. so and our hearing isn't that much different. You know, we can we can hear things and if we really pay attention and think about it, we can identify easily. That's like when we hear uh, and we have a recording, a recent one that Jason sent us of uh, and and talking we're talking about uh, desert creatures and we have an area in Arizona right now that's very active. We're getting you know, hundreds and hundreds of footprints and the ranges are from three inches to 20 inches. And I mean, it's just, it's a lot, a lot of stuff going on there. And he also recorded vocal recently. And when people talk about, well, you know, they imitate animal noises, owls and things like that. His recording uh, that I'm speaking of has there, I think there's like three different sounds and it's one continuous vocal. But it, you, at first you think it's, well, this kind of animal, then it changes to an owl, then it changes into something completely bizarre. So, uh, you know, a human could identify that. Maybe other animals can't. Yeah, that's a good point, Will. And we also got one uh, in Texas from Joe down there where he was at the campfire, and off in the distance you heard these, these vocalizations. Mm-hmm. And the same with Chris in Tennessee, who recently sent us some really good audio. Um, in fact, it scared the hell out of him the last part of the audio, and it's a fairly long recording of these th- this thing screaming. Uh, and there's no doubt what it is. Uh, and then the end, the end of it, you still hear the creature screaming, but you also hear him running. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, you hear his footfall. <laughs> so, and, and what I was getting to on, on the other animals thing, this is a, a kind of an interesting piece also. You know, people might say, well, why would they imitate animal noises like owls or what have you, coyotes, things like that? And it's because the prey animals, if they did other vocals that say, you know, the screams like Chris had, and I've heard that type of vocal in the wild a number of times myself. Uh, it's kind of a signature scream the Sasquatch does. But if you're hunting, uh, you don't want to alert the game animals of your presence, Right. So you might, in terms of coordinating with one another, sometimes you do, you know, tongue pops or rock clacking, things like that. But if you don't want to alert the game that you're close to and about to get, you might make a noise like an owl because the deer or whatever animal is not going to think anything about that, right? Because that's a natural part of the surroundings. And that's interesting you mentioned that because it just made me, uh, you know, I've heard stories that the Native Americans would do the same thing, you know, right. um, and even years ago, and even in the military people, you know, I see movies about the military and, and everybody knows what camouflage is, but that's only visual camouflage. There's also a thing called noise camouflage, you know, that cover your movements. If I could ask one other question that I know a lot of people are curious about, um, most, I mean, any animal, they tell you not to run from most, most predator animals you know because the instinct Mm -hmm. to uh, to chase you and we've seen videotape from i have at least eastern europe as well as the united states of what was hypothetically one of these creatures chasing a vehicle um i know a comment i i noticed that neither one of these creatures i mean they just happened to both appear, appear as males and they were both rather large i mean do you think that that interacting with vehicles make be at a road crossing where we see a lot of a lot of reports from 
or these in, these instant these instances where they chase vehicles is that something that they're doing for their own entertainment possibly is it a coming of age thing because i th- i'm could they possibly wait for a car to come to cross in front of it are they trying to draw us out it's a weird behavior well you got to remember everything they do is for a practical reason they're not just entertaining right. themselves so if they're after a okay. vehicle, and I've interviewed quite a few people, including police officers, where their vehicles have been paralleled or, and chased, um, it, it's, it's a predatory instinct. And it might be they're, they're assessing the situation to see if it's an advantage where they could take that vehicle or not. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, they're not doing it frivolously. They don't do anything frivolously. And when they're seen on or near roads... Um, you know, they're, they're doing it on purpose. It's not accidental. I don't think it's ever accidental when they're seen. And the, the, the road crossings same, are, are same just, thing. Same thing. Yeah. Okay. Fascinating. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Well, you've, uh, and I just want to kind of dovetail into that. You've had a situation where you were trying to leave an area and it, one of these creatures had grabbed your car. It did, and we've heard that before, too. They've done things to vehicles. Um, you know, again, they watch us carefully whenever we're out there, and uh, they're assessing what they can and can't do and deciding if it's worth the risk. It depends on how much experience they've got with things like that. So, Will, uh, let, let me ask, um, was that uh, an attempt to go after children because I, I, I know that we, we, we've talked to um, I think it was Brenda before and she told a story about how the um, the pickup was grabbed by these Sasquatches and they were probably going after the children. It's kind of similar I suppose to you know when they slap the side of a building with their hand is is they're, they're making an assessment when they're doing that. You know, they're trying to, um, in numerical superiority is a big thing with them. In other words, you know, they, they're very wary about humans because we're dangerous. We're a dangerous creature to them as we are to every other animal on the planet. Uh, it's just been our history. It's how we got to where we are, uh, because we're actually a vicious, uh, species. So, and I'm sure we, in our ancient past, we had that interaction with these things. In fact, you know, I mentioned my native friends told me that about their ancestors, you know, them coming into their traditional home areas the creatures were there and they ran them out so um they're going to be careful when they try to approach people and do these things so you know the house slapping thing that's they're trying to count heads trying to see how many people are there trying to flush them out uh could be a similar thing with vehicles so you'd recommend right after the house slapping don't open the door and go outside i wouldn't Turn, turn your lights on, change your behaviors up, cut the brush away from your house. You know, those are a few things that are good things to do. The brush has to be cut back at least 50 feet. They don't like open areas. They like to be able to use that stuff to sneak up. Well, I can't tell you. My wife is taking notes to this because we're <laughs> looking to buy a piece of, a piece of property up, up that area. And she's, she says, Paul, I'm not going to wake up one morning and have one of these guys looking in my window. I'm minus, I don't know what to tell you. Well, get a hold of me. Get a hold of me privately, Paul. I'll, I'll tell you all the things you need to do to, to make sure that doesn't happen. I'd be really grateful. Thank you, Paul. Well, fellas, we're about out of time for this segment. Any final thoughts? 
Paul, I want to thank you again for coming on the show. Always good to hear from you. And uh, you had a very interesting in, encounter. So it's uh, always a privilege to partake with to, to participate with, with, with you and, and Mr. Jevening. Brian, as a privilege to make your acquaintance. I hope we can all do this again sometime. Paul, you're always welcome yeah. here. Thank you, my friend. Yes. Brian, any final thoughts? No, I just want to thank uh, Paul and all of our listeners for um, for tuning in, and uh, we'll see you guys next time. All right, everyone. Thanks for listening. Thank you, gentlemen. Stay tuned for the next segment, folks. Bye now. Bigfoot lore alive in Estacada area, Clackamas County, Oregon. Long History of Alleged Encounters in Estacada by Vanessa Von Voris for the Estacada News, October 1st, 2008. While hiking along the snowy banks of the Clackamas River late one January afternoon in 1969, Millie Kiggins of Estacada, her husband, and their friend Art Schneider found something that would thrust the Kiggins and the quiet wilderness surrounding Estacada into an international spotlight. We went to look at a Forest Service cabin up above Squaw Lake on the way to Cold Springs about 20 miles from Estacada, Kiggins said. They were going to sell them, and we wanted to look at them. We started out late, and we were in about three feet of snow. There was a gate, and we couldn't get through. So we started to walk, and it looked like somebody had already gotten through because there were tracks in the snow. They noticed the large size of the tracks and their depth. They were 18 inches deep, she said. Whatever had made them was heavy, because ours were a couple inches deep. It had to have been walking on two feet, and its stride was 67 inches. The path of the tracks was in an unusually straight line, too straight to be man-made footprints, she said. The hikers followed the imprints for about a quarter mile before they realized it was getting late and decided to turn back. Before leaving, Kiggins documented their discovery with a photograph and contacted the U.S. Forest Service. They said it was a snowshoe rabbit. I have no idea what it was, but if it was a rabbit, it would have to be a big one to make prints that big. I told them if it was a snowshoe rabbit, they had better look out because it's big enough to eat them, she said. Back at home on their farm, on the outskirts of Estacada, the Kigginses began to experience a series of Bigfoot-like phenomena. He was around here for a year, she said. We found footprints all over the farm. Once they led to a five-foot fence and continued on the other side uninterrupted, as if he stepped right over it. Sometimes we would smell him. Smelled like a bad nursing home. We heard loud screams and grunts all at once lasting ten or fifteen seconds. It could be heard miles away. The hair on the back of your neck would stand up. It spooked the cattle. Kiggin sent a copy of her picture to Bigfoot hunter John Green, who later visited her with Roger Patterson, famous for the Patterson-Gimlin Bigfoot film footage from 1967. KATU interviewed her, and she was included in a British television documentary. Her photograph was published in a book written by a wildlife biologist and in a fifth-grade textbook. During the early 1970s, Estacada became a hotspot for Bigfoot enthusiasts, Scientists, hunters, trappers, and the media came from throughout the country 
and across the sea in the hope of gathering evidence of the existence of an elusive, shadowy creature that walks the forest on two legs. Many of the Bigfoot hunters also came looking for Kiggins. Eventually, the Estacada Police Department, back when Estacada had one, helped put a stop to it. We had all sorts of crackpots up here, she said, and I guess I'm one of them because I saw the tracks, but I can't help that. For anonymous first-hand accounts of Bigfoot phenomena, enthusiasts can now peruse the databases of websites such as OregonBigfoot.com and BigfootEncounters.com that collectively contain approximately 40 reports for the Estacada area alone between 1912 and 2006. A U.S. Forest Service employee, who does not wish to be identified, said she has never taken a single Bigfoot report in the 12 years she has worked at the desk of the Clackamas River Ranger District Office in Estacada. We don't have a book or a piece of paper that states sightings at all, she said. She refused to comment further for fear she would, quote, get in trouble again, unquote. There was at least one highly photographed, easily accessible Bigfoot in Estacada, a menacing replica created by a chainsaw artist. It guards the entrance to Mike's second-hand store and holds a sign warning potential shoplifters they will be eaten. I've heard second- or third-hand stories, store owner Mike Doolittle said. I would think that if there was a Bigfoot, I would have heard about it on the 6 o'clock news. I know Santa Claus is real because I've seen him. I've never seen a Bigfoot. Kiggins has never seen Bigfoot either, and she is careful to emphasize that she is not exactly sure what created the strange tracks, the spooky sounds, or the awful smell. Although nearly 40 years have passed since she photographed the tracks in the snow, she still gets correspondence from Bigfoot enthusiasts. I recently got a letter from a guy in England who wants to know about it, she laughed. I don't know if I'm going to write back. It might be just another crackpot. Frontiersmen are not, as a rule, apt to be very superstitious. They lead lives too hard and practical, and have too little imagination in things spiritual and supernatural. I have heard but few ghost stories while living on the frontier, and those few were of a perfectly commonplace and conventional type. But I once listened to a goblin story, which rather impressed me. A grizzled, weather-beaten old mountain hunter named Bauman who, born and had passed all of his life on the frontier, told the story to me. He must have believed what he said, for he could hardly repress a shudder at certain points of the tale. But he was of German ancestry, and in childhood had doubtless been saturated with all kinds of ghost and goblin lore, so that many fearsome superstitions were latent in his mind. Besides, he knew well the stories told by the Indian medicine men in their winter camps, of the snow walkers and the specters, the formless evil beings that haunt the forest depths and dog and waylay the lonely wanderer who after nightfall passes through the regions where they lurk. It may be that when overcome by the horror of the fate that befell his friend and when oppressed by the awful dread of the unknown, he grew to attribute both at the time and still more in remembrance weird and elfin traits to what was merely some abnormally wicked and cunning wild beast. But whether this was so or not, no man can say. When the event occurred, Bauman was still a young man and was trapping with a partner among the mountains dividing the forks of the salmon from the head of Wisdom River. Not having had much luck, he and his partner determined to go up into a particularly wild and lonely pass 
through which ran a small stream said to contain many beavers. The pass had an evil reputation because the year before, a solitary hunter who had wandered into it was slain, seemingly by a wild beast, the half-eaten remains being afterwards found by some mining prospectors who had passed his camp only the night before. The memory of this event, however, weighted very lightly with the two trappers, who were as adventurous and hardy as others of their kind. They took their two lean mountain ponies to the foot of the pass, where they left them in an open beaver meadow, the rocky, timber-clad ground being from there onward impractical for horses. They then struck out on foot through the vast, gloomy forest, and in about four hours reached a little open glade where they concluded to camp, as signs of game were plenty. There was still an hour or two of daylight left, and after building a brush lean-to and throwing down and opening their packs, they started upstream. The country was very dense and hard to travel through, as there was much down timber, although here and there the somber woodland was broken by small glades of mountain grass. At dusk, they again reached camp. The glade in which it was pitched was not many yards wide, the tall, close-set pines and firs rising round it like a wall. On one side was a little stream beyond which rose the steep mountain slope, covered with the unbroken growth of evergreen forest. They were surprised to find that during their absence, something, apparently a bear, had visited camp and had rummaged about among their things, scattering the contents of their packs and in sheer wantonness destroying their lean-to. The footprints of the beast were quite plain, but at first they paid no particular heed to them busying themselves with rebuilding lean-to, laying out their beds and stores and lighting the fire. While Bowman was making ready supper, it being already dark, his companion began to examine the tracks more closely, and soon took a brand from the fire to follow them up, where the intruder had walked along a game trail after leaving the camp. When the brand flickered out, he returned and took another, repeating his inspection of the footprints very closely. Coming back to the fire, he stood by it a minute or two, peering out into the darkness, and suddenly remarked, Bauman, that bear has been walking on two legs. Bauman laughed at this, but his partner insisted that he was right, and upon again examining the tracks with a torch, they certainly did seem to be made by but two paws or feet. However, it was too dark to make sure. After discussing whether the footprints could possibly be those of a human being and coming to the conclusion that they could not be, the two men rolled up in their blankets and went to sleep under the lean-to. At midnight, Bauman was awakened by some noise and sat up in his blankets. As he did so, his nostrils were struck by a strong, wild beast odor, and he caught the loom of a great body in the darkness at the mouth of the lean-to. Grasping his rifle, he fired at the vague, threatening shadow, but must have missed, for immediately afterwards he heard the smashing of the underwood as the thing, whatever it was, rushed off into the impenetrable blackness of the forest and the night. After this, the two men slept but little, sitting up by the rekindled fire, but they heard nothing more. In the morning, they started out to look at the few traps they had set the previous evening and put out new ones. By an unspoken agreement, they kept together all day and returned to camp towards evening. On nearing it, they saw, hardly to their astonishment, 
that the lean-to had again been torn down. The visitor of the preceding day had returned, and in wanton malice had tossed about their camp kit and bedding and destroyed the shanty. The ground was marked up by its tracks, and on leaving the camp it had gone along the soft earth by the brook. The footprints were as plain as if on snow, and after a careful scrutiny of the trail, it certainly did seem as if, whatever the thing was, it had walked off on but two legs. The men, thoroughly uneasy, gathered a great heap of dead logs and kept up a roaring fire throughout the night, one or the other sitting on guard most of the time. About midnight, the thing came down through the forest opposite, across the brook, and stayed there on the hillside for nearly an hour. They could hear the branches crackle as it moved about, and several times it uttered a harsh, grating, long-drawn moan, a peculiar, sinister sound. Yet it did not venture near the fire. In the morning... The two trappers, after discussing the strange events of the last 36 hours, decided that they would shoulder their packs and leave the valley that afternoon. They were the more ready to do this because in spite of seeing a good deal of game sign, they had caught very little fur. However, it was necessary first to go along the line of their traps and gather them, and this they started out to do. All the morning they kept together, picking up trap after trap, each one empty. On first leaving camp, they had the disagreeable sensation of being followed. In the dense spruce thickets, they occasionally heard a branch snap after they had passed, and now and then there were slight rustling noises among the small pines to one side of them. At noon, they were back within a couple of miles of camp. In the high, bright sunlight, their fears seemed absurd to the two armed men, accustomed as they were through long years of lonely wandering in the wilderness to face every kind of danger from man, brute, or element. There were still three beaver traps to collect from a little pond in a wide ravine nearby. Bauman volunteered to gather these and bring them in, while his companion went ahead to camp and made ready the packs. On reaching the pond, Bauman found three beavers in the traps, one of which had been pulled loose and carried into a beaver house. He took several hours in securing and preparing the beaver, and when he started homewards, he marked with some uneasiness how low the sun was getting. As he hurried toward camp under the tall trees, the silence and desolation of the forest waited on him. His feet made no sound on the pine needles and the slanting sun rays. Striking through among the straight trunks made a gray twilight in which objects at a distance glimmered indistinctly. There was nothing to break the gloomy stillness which, when there is no breeze, always broods over these somber, primeval forests. At last he came to the edge of the little glade where the camp lay, and shouted as he approached it, but got no answer. The campfire had gone out, though the thin blue smoke was still curling upwards. Near it lay the packs, wrapped and arranged. At first Bauman could see nobody, nor did he receive an answer to his call. Stepping forward, he again shouted, and as he did so, his eye fell on the body of his friend, stretched beside the trunk of a great fallen spruce. Rushing towards it, the horrified trapper found that the body was still warm, but that the neck was broken, while there were four great fang marks in the throat. 
The footprints of the unknown beast creature printed deep in the soft soil told the whole story. The unfortunate man, having finished his packing, had sat down on the spruce log with his face to the fire and his back to the dense woods to wait for his companion. While thus waiting, his monstrous assailant, which must have been lurking in the woods, waiting for a chance to catch one of the adventurers unprepared, came silently up from behind, walking with long, noiseless steps and seemingly still on two legs. Evidently unheard, it reached the man and broke his neck by wrenching his head back with its forepaws while it buried its teeth in his throat. It had not eaten the body, but apparently had romped and gambolled around it in uncouth, ferocious glee, occasionally rolling over and over it, and then had fled back into the soundless depths of the woods. Bauman, utterly unnerved and believing that the creature with which he had to deal was something either half-human or half-devil, some great goblin beast, abandoned everything but his rifle and struck off at speed down the pass, not halting until he reached the beaver meadows where the hobbled ponies were still grazing. Mounting, he rode onwards through the night until beyond reach of pursuit. Thanks for listening to this episode of Creek Devil. If you or anyone you know has had an encounter with these creatures, please contact us at williamjevning at yahoo.com. That's William, J-E-V-N-I-N-G, at yahoo.com. All communication is confidential. Join us for another program next week. And until then, keep your eyes open now.